0: the power of their data Wasabi, Sabi, another Boston based championship team.
1: The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24 7 non stop destination for A's baseball. This is A's Cast Live, your comprehensive look at the Oakland Athletics. And 29 other MLB clubs. 2 2 pitch on Trout, and he blasts
2: one. Way back! Hits one out. He oh, no. He's your home run derby champion.
1: Join us as we take you inside the baseball universe. From spin rate to juiced balls to game-changing moments, we have you covered. Spend your afternoon with us next from the town, only on A's Cast Live. A's
2: Cast Live. Here's one into right. That ball will carry. Back at the wall. That is gone. And Rosarena has put Tampa Bay on top as he flicks one into the seats and right onto the tarp. And it's one to nothing Tampa Bay as he has his tenth postseason home run. Here's one in the center and the number nine man Barnes is aboard with one out in the sixth. Man you're talking about a short leash seventy three pitches two hits. Nine strikeouts. Snell can't believe it. As Kevin Cash said, these guys need short memories and thick skin because this is the way we do it. Back to the top of the order and Nick Anderson comes into the game. Here's a 2-0. Hard hit. Fan! Down the line. Hits the fence. Digging for third is Barnes. They will hold him there on a double by Betts and the Dodgers are in business and a blink here in the sixth. And this one gets by Zunino. Tie game. Here's a play at the play. Throw home. Too late. Dodgers lead. That scores. And just like that, the Dodgers are on top by one in the sixth. Maurice to Adamas. Call
3: strike three. The Dodgers win. Finally, the wait is over.
2: The Dodgers are the champions of 2020 in a year like no other, where joy has been so hard to come by. Tonight, tears of joy, let them flow.
1: Here's Chris Townsend.
4: Wow. You're really gonna go Randy Newman, I love LA. Really, Cody?
5: That's the Dodgers victory song.
4: That's how you're gonna start this Thursday. This Thursday edition of A's Cast Live. By the way, we will we will break all that down. Very good job with, with the audio. And boy, do we have a guest list for you today. We keep rocking and rolling. It doesn't matter, regular season, postseason, offseason. Rick Honeycutt, former pitching coach for the Dodgers, You remember him as a great lefty for your Oakland Athletics as he's a world champion from the 1989 team. He was there. He's now a special assistant after he retired as the pitching coach. That's why Pryor is the pitching coach for the Dodgers now. Rick Honeycutt is going to join us at 115. Kevin Franzen from the Phillies and now working for MLB Radio on Sirius XM, former San Jose State great, will join me at 130. Dallas Braden, the lefty, will be here at 2 o'clock. 2.30 will be a half hour of Ray Fossey. 3 o'clock, Paul Hembikides from ESPN from the morning show Get Up There on television will be here at 3, the top researcher for ESPN. And then Dan, the K-Man Straley. We did this interview two nights ago as their season is winding down. So when it's 7 o'clock here, what time was it for Dan there in uh, South Korea?
5: So we did that interview Tuesday night at 7 p.m. it Ben have been in the future, 11 a.m. Wednesday for Dan Straley. So we just kind of
4: address how everything went, what it was like, um, fans in the stands, the whole thing. So we'll we'll, we'll get a, a one last update about the KBO from our old friend, Dan the K-Man Straley. So I thought this was what we were going to talk about today. I thought we were going to rehash the World Series. But that's not what's going on here. I just saw it, put it on my phone. Cody saw it on Twitter. So I had to look at it. Seeing Tony LaRussa in a White Sox hat, White Sox jersey, as Tony... They're going over, uh, right now, MLB Network is going over his career and his wins and what a career it was uh, or has been and will continue. With the White Sox, he won 522 games to 510 losses. With the Oakland A's, fabulous, 798 wins to 673 losses. And with the Cardinals, 1,408 wins and uh, 1,182 losses. I got to tell you, I'm pretty shocked. I'm not shocked because we knew the rumors, but just the fact that 76 years old, and this is just like flown through, this is essentially a manager and an owner, a relationship, and a relationship that they both felt didn't go long enough with each other. And when you own the team, you have every right to do, if you stay within the rules, obviously, you have every right to do what you want. And if you're the owner and you say, listen, guys, I know you want to go younger and you want to find somebody who's into analytics, but I'm the owner and you know what? I only have so much time left. I want to win and I believe at our best option is Tony LaRussa. I'm just trying to see how old is Jerry Reinsdorf? Yeah, Jerry Reinsdorf is 84 years old. He gets the guy he wants. And now Randy Hahn and, and and Kenny Williams, and they just they you gotta wear it, you gotta deal with it. And you're now you're going old school here, even though Tony isn't as old school as you think. Because they had their own version of analytics back in the day, Sandy Alderson and Tony LaRusa. They just didn't have, wait for it, computers. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have all the kind of stuff they got today, right? There was no Trackman, there was no StatCast, there's no Microsoft, there's no Apple. Those were all just starting to be in the works, right? No cell phones. But they had their own version. They created what what would become the modern-day bullpen, how to run a bullpen. You know, because so many people were, back in those days, you wanted somebody like Raleigh Fingers. You wanted a Goose Gossage. You wanted a Bruce Suter. You want one of these guys that could pitch two to three innings. Now, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take a former starter who's got electric stuff. We're going to have a lefty specialist, Rick Honeycutt, who's coming up. You got Dennis Eckersley as the closer. They started their own kind of version. So I, I don't think Tony's that far off. I mean, recently in the front office with the Arizona Diamondbacks, he's been a special assistant with the Angels and Billy Epler, who just got fired. But Billy Epler is one of the analytics guys that came from the Yankees and, and, and that tree. It's going to be fascinating to watch because we just saw it. Cody, we just watched the Chicago White Sox. They're tough. They've got a lot of good young players. And you can't tell me old guys have come in and it doesn't work. I'll throw Jack McKeon at you.
5: Yeah, I I'm, want I'm to see how this works out because we know how young and talented the White Sox are. And Rick Renteria was doing a great job, but he also did the same thing in Chicago with the Cubs where he was doing a great job. They let him go, and they hired the better candidate, which was Joe Madden, and then they won the World Series, what, two years later? I don't think the White Sox will win the World Series next year, but I think under Tony they can learn a lot. There's going to be a disconnect between them because a lot of the younger players, they're going to buy into Tony's style How's he gonna feel with Tim Anderson bat flipping? That's something I wanna, I wanna see. The best tweet I've seen so far, though, from anyone talking about this, is High Heat Stats on Twitter said breaking: the Chicago White Sox have agreed to have signed Harold Baines out of retirement to take over as the DH in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they they have all those guys in place. They're gonna have Crochet back next year, who's gonna be a hard thrower for them. They you know their their rotation is still pretty good with Julio and Keichel. I just want to see how the players mesh with Tony and what's what his staff looks like. Because longtime pitching coach Don Cooper's not there anymore, so who's he going to bring in as pitching coach? Could it be Rick Honeycutt? Maybe I don't know. I'm Just speculating.
4: Duncan, get the band back together. Yeah, you, again. Could,
5: you could. Like I, I want to see what kind of staff he puts together and how they work with Rick Hahn and and uh, Kenny Williams going forward. Because this is a really talented White Sox team, and Tony gets a lot of his talent, but a lot of those teams he managed were they were old like they were I know the the A's when he came in they were a little younger with Conseco McGuire but the Cardinals he had McGuire when he was towards the end of his career a lot of those guys were older and yeah, he did manage pull and and Yachty so I, I'm curious I'm going to give him a chance I'm not going to say it's it's over and awful hired they, they you know they should be fired all for for thinking about it you got to give him a chance he's a hall of famer for a reason.
4: Yeah, and to think Tony is not smart enough to realize that if he goes in and pulls the it's my way or the highway, this isn't this isn't a long-term deal. This is win now. And Tony needs to fall back on one of his great strengths when you talk to guys who played for him in the late 80s for the A's. Tony cared about his players. Tony talked to his players. He was a great communicator. It's it's what we see so much with Bob Melvin. He can't go in there and say, I'm a Hall of Famer, and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, you'll lose the clubhouse, and that won't work. Well, Tony knows that. Tony knows that he's not here for a a five-year plan, and he'll weed out the guys he doesn't like. He goes in and does that. This is a one-and-done deal. I have not looked. Have you seen what the contract is?
5: I just know it's a multi-year deal. I don't know if they put the uh, specifics out there on it. I'll look it up. Um, but they—they they ha- White Sox talk on Twitter has been putting out some of the uh, clips from his his presser. He, there is one where they asked, uh, the, it's, the title says, the White Sox have swag. How does Tony La Russa feel about players expressing themselves and having fun on the field? Would you like to hear what he had to say? Because I haven't heard it yet. So I'm kind of curious. I, I- they, they, Do they not
4: remember he had Ricky Henderson and Jose Canseco?
5: Yeah. those they, Ash brothers. Those guys were a little flashy back in the day.
4: Uh, he, had the, he had like one of the flashiest teams of all time. They were rock stars. Yeah. Let me hear it.
6: I always reasoned it, that if it's sincere, I didn't have a problem with it. And what I see now is that with players that are being more exuberant, I take, uh, you know, Anderson, Tim Anderson, for an example, uh, now it's, it's people showing that, Hey, I'm coming through. Uh, in fact, major league baseball is, in, is, in, in, uh, is encouraging them to do so. And if I see that it's sincere and it's directed towards the game, uh, that's display displaying the kind of emotion that you want, you know, as a, as a coach, what you want to do is you want to get players passionately involved with the competition and if you do that that's how you, you get exciting games you're entertaining so the fact that now that we're encouraging players to be more expressive you know i i i'm, I'm going to treat like tim for example part of the family and uh and you know the only thing i say and, and uh, even some of the people i talk to if 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 your team celebrates and that their team celebrates then neither team can be upset when when, when you see celebrations as long as everybody's doing it sincerely.
5: Do we forget about Dennis Eckersley? I always thought that was more I thought it was because Eck was so nervous on the mound, that's why he did it. That's what everyone always said. And even Eck said that, but you're right. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what happens when it's not sincere, how that how that goes over in, in the down uh down there well over there on the south side of Chicago. You know where? South side of Chicago, not north side. Not east, not west, the south side.
4: You know, can I translate that for you? Here's the translation. You win, you can do whatever you want. You lose, it's going to be a different ballgame. I mean, Jose and Mark McGuire, they're hitting home runs. They're the Bash brothers. Ricky's picking at his jersey. He's got the trot. Hindu, well, they were winning. X pointed at people when he strikes them out to end the game, they're winning. That's the, that's the you know, if you're losing, I don't think any baseball fan, does anybody really want to, here's a great example. Joey Bats has one of the great, walk-off bat flips of all time against the Blue Jays. I mean, against the uh, against the Rangers, right? But then, was it a year later or two years later, his team's down to the Atlanta Braves. I, I It was the kind of score where it's like 11-3. I don't remember the exact score, but it's like 11-3. And he does it again in a regular season game interleague play, major bat flip, and your team's down 11-4, 11-3, or whatever it was, like, that's not acceptable. I think all of us would agree, if you're down by X amount of runs in a regular season game, and you're doing the crazy big bat flip, and now your team's just down 11-4 or 11-5, I don't know how many people would even think that's acceptable. Now, if you're doing it to win a game and your team's good, I get it. Let's have some fun. But when you're bat flipping and you're down eight runs, <laughs> I mean, Cody, you can't tell me you like that. I mean, that's kind of like, really, dude, you're 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 down eight runs.
5: It, it's equivalent to the player in the NFL that celebrates a first down when they're down 35 to 10 or when a, Correct. Or when a player makes a three-pointer down by 25 and they're doing the, the eyeballs and the three down low or the three up top. It's like you're losing by 22 points still. Uh, there's nothing to celebrate. Now, it, it, it's vice versa if you're up that much and you're celebrating – I always feel like you should, you know, you could celebrate, but be don't go over the top like we see with a lot of guys. But, yeah, if you're losing, please don't celebrate. You have nothing to celebrate. You're losing by double digits probably, or you're down by a certain amount of runs. Don't celebrate. This man had a great career as a left-hander, great career in the
4: postseason, and a great career as a pitching coach. Rick Honeycutt retired from the Dodgers, but he's still a special assistant. I mean, Dave Roberts, what do you mean to Dave Roberts? Dave Roberts gave him a shout out there in Arlington after the win. We got a chance to catch up with Rick Honeycutt from his home, and we could, and he was there, by the way, in Arlington for the series. He's back home now. We congratulated him on winning a World Series.
7: Well, it was uh, extremely gratifying enough for the organization and for – for the you know all, all the guys, especially the, you know the guys that have been there so long and had, had failed. So that core group of uh, Seeger and even Bellinger, but mainly I'm extremely happy for Kirsch and Kinley and uh, Turner that had been there you know the longest of the guys. So it was uh, it was quite a moment for sure.
4: How did you feel when Dave Roberts gave you a a shout out there after the game?
7: Well, totally unexpected for sure. But um, I, I was, I was, I was, you know, at at the game. I'm not even sure if he knew I was even there. But that was, uh, you know, definitely um, almost made maybe have a tear come to my eye. I mean, I wasn't that definitely wasn't expected, but I'm uh, very appreciative of uh, it. I got to talk to him, even though I was on the other side of the fence. Um, we hung around. I was. Sitting with um, three of our scouts, and uh, we finally made our way down when they would let us get down, and we got to yell and talk to a lot of the a lot of the guys, and saw Dave after he got done doing all of his interviews and things. So uh, I was extremely grateful for that, but uh, definitely wasn't expecting anything like that.
4: Yeah, it's so different to do it as a player than, you know, I mean, you're still, I mean, they still view you like you are the pitching coach, but I think about, you know, the greatness that you were on the 1989 team, we've celebrated that team, Uh, also what you did in, in 88 and 90. And just going through, I didn't realize 30 postseason games you pitched in, you never lost a game, which is absolutely incredible. And you gave up zero runs in 88 and 90 in the postseason. But what's the difference winning a championship as a player and then being there as, you know, you've been such a big part as a coach to all these guys' lives?
7: Well, obviously, you know, you – you uh, come up just, you know, wanting to play in the big leagues and obviously, you know, you dream as a kid getting the chance to play in a, in a World Series and winning a World Series. And that finally, you know, came came to pass uh, after, you know, a, a long time playing. But, um, you know, as a, as a player, you're just, you know, you're completely you know, your competition is on the field and you get to compete as a group and there's nothing that replaces that and then get the opportunity to coach. It's, it's, it's different because, you know, the, um, then you're kind of living through your guys, you know, your preparation for them and all the things that you've done, you know, during the, during the course of the season, the, then want them to continue to excel and, um, and do well. And um, you know the the pain that you feel with them when you when you lose. I mean, it's the same as a player, but I guess as a coach, you just don't have that ability to you know do it on the field. You have to you're there, you know, living and dying with you know every every pitch, every play, and um, it's uh, it's it's almost tougher to watch than it was when you got got a chance to actually be active. So, <laughs> uh, but again, it was. Uh, very special uh, just to see the guys, see them celebrating in the relief, I'm sure, that uh, and getting that getting that chance to, you know, hold that trophy and, and be a part of it as that group.
4: You know, I think about there's been great athletes who have gotten all the awards, and they've had great regular season numbers. That's going to put them in the Hall of Fame. I think about Steve Young, the old 49er quarterback, they always be, oh, you haven't won a Super Bowl. Joe Montana won all those Super Bowls. And finally, when he won that Super Bowl, they talked about ripping that monkey out of his back. I think of Clayton Kershaw. I mean, obviously, he's going to the Hall of Fame. He's been one of the great pitchers of his time. But how big do you think this was for him to finally get that pitch well in the World Series and win the World Series and get that ring?
7: Well, there, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, there's so much, you know, made of it every year that um, – the ability to pitch during the season and then sometimes it not translate over, you know, into the end of the playoffs. But again, it's a it's a team. It's a team sport. I mean, I remember listening to Smoltz one of the nights when he pitched, I think, game one of the World Series and he really went down exactly and um, went through, you know, is really like th- three three innings that affected you know a lot of different different things over his postseason career and um you know but again getting the opportunity to to be there and and uh again to you know help that team get to the you know obviously the playoffs and then then the postseason and i just really um you know personally for for me i mean it's This young man, you know, I've got to see him basically from you know the first day that he was he was drafted to to being in um, you know up in the big leagues at such an early age, and uh, what he's meant to the organization and to the all the pitchers in the the organization and to the team as a whole. I mean, he's just a great individual, great great person, and great teammate. That um, he just wanted him to everybody pulling for him and wanting him to do so well. And he did, and he pitched, he pitched, he pitched great. in um, in the series and, and, the uh, in the postseason overall, and, um, thankful for him to, you know, finally get that opportunity to be able to hold that, uh, championship trophy. And, you know, you know, it's what you always, you know, out of all my 20 years, we only won one time. So there's, um, um, as a player so it's 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 one thing you know to, they just can't take that ring away from you. you can talk about all the all the you can talk about all the uh, other things but you can't take that championship away from them ever
4: no doubt and uh, obviously the 1989 a is one of the best teams that we've ever seen uh, going back to the the big decision in the game that everybody's still talking about is Kevin Cash taking out Blake snow what do you think about that move
7: well you know, I I think I was I was at the game and I I was just as shocked as anybody when he come walk. You know, uh, I think Barnes got the base hit and then he's got the the lineup coming you know up for the third time, but he's at sitting at seventy five pitches and basically it just dominated dominated the game uh, much like he did in game one, and just think that you know the. The importance of this win. This is basically a must-win, but it's it is it is different. It's a different you know um, game as far as when. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing when when uh, Dave took took Kersh out the other night, and after five and two thirds, he just thrown seemed like he was just getting into his groove and just had gotten you know two guys out in two pitches, and um, of course the move paid off for us that night. Um, our bullpen came in and did the job and um if their bullpen would have come in and did the job it would be probably less talk about it but at the same time you think that with him sitting there at 75 pitches that he definitely could have could have you know went deeper in that in that game and um but um that's you know it's a it's a strange game when you're you know when you plan for these and they go through uh, looking at almost how many batters and this third time through the lineup is, you know, kind of the it's like their their focal point now. Not letting a starter uh, go through that unless there's just a, you know, a, a, having a large lead. But, you know, he by far was had pitched their best for them as a starter. And you you would um, I'm sure that. Um, <laughs> as a Rays fan had to be almost shocked that, uh, he did make that move.
4: If, if Tony LaRussa had come out and tried to take out Dave Stewart that early in the game, when Stu had a one, nothing lead, how do you think that would have gone down?
7: (laughs) Well, that's, um, you know, again, talking at a different time. I mean, it was back. So I always tell people, I said, back in, you know, the, the years that we won, you know, Stu was, Stu was the guy. Bobby Welch was the guy, and and uh, and uh, Mike Moore. You know, those their their reins were were loosened. You know, it, it had to be a situation, and most of the time, you let those guys as long as their pitch count and they hadn't had many struggles as far as pitch wise. And before that, they were allowed to pitch out of you know situations, uh, but um you know that's just the difference in today's game compared to when it was you know <laughs> you know thirty years ago so it's uh, uh lot a lot has changed especially in, a, in the last you know five or six years it seems like where it's going more uh matchup oriented and like i said the the third time through is like a real sticking point with um with the um, analytics it seems like today. <clears throat>
4: And how about your old skipper, Tony La Russa, at 76 years old is going to be taking over the Chicago White Sox. When you heard that news, what'd you think about Tony getting back in uniform and being on the bench?
7: Yeah, uh, I was definitely uh, a little, um, I saw where his name, you know, it surfaced and, you know, I, I know him and Reinsdorf go back a long way and <clears throat> I'm sure Reinsdorf maybe had even reached out to him, so I'm not really sure, but I think <clears throat> I'd, I'd say Mr. Reinsdorf had spent a lot of money with, for, on that team. He you know, brought in a lot of free agents, and they had a, you know, they had a good year, but then failed in the in the first round. So, um, you know, I'm, I would think that uh, the, the owner has the final final say, but he, I'm sure, had a lot to do with. Uh, um, asking tony and i um, sure tony has some for sure some um allegiance to mr reinsdorf and so i think um you know it's you never you never know i, I would say tony still looks great he's in great health so uh, it's not that it's something that he needs to do obviously he's he's won uh, championships with uh, you know with the A's and with uh, St. Louis so it's not something he's a Hall of Fame manager so it's not something that he he needed to do for any reason and uh, but I would say that uh, he probably is somewhat doing it uh, for Mr. Reinsdorf and uh, he'll come in and and do a great job and hopefully help help that uh, organization win
4: Rick, thank you so much for the time. We truly appreciate it. We love catching up and congratulations on a championship. I know it means so much to you and the Dodgers. Be well, be safe, and let's talk later on this
7: offseason. You bet. Anytime. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.
4: The great Rick Honeycutt. That was pretty cool. I mean, when Dave Roberts is shouting out after the game, Rick Honeycutt had definitely What he did for a lot of those pitchers. And you think of Kershaw and Bueller and these guys. uh, Truly a great pitching coach. And, of course, what he did as a left-hander with the Oakland Athletics and in his entire career. But you think that many postseason games and he never lost? Didn't give up a run in 88 or 89 in those runs to the World Series for the A's? left-handed guy that could make it all happen. How about a right-handed guy who can make it all happen? San Jose State, great. Philadelphia Phillies broadcaster. And you can hear him on SiriusXM on the MLB channel. Kevin Franzen comes to us, I believe, I want to say probably from New Jersey. Franny, how are you? Yo. Franny, how are you?
8: Uh, yeah. So, uh, I'm good. I'm in Philadelphia in the rain and I guess the AirPods don't work with the Google meet type thing. So my apologies.
4: I, and I had this big buildup. You're one of the great hitters in San Jose state history. I had this whole Not thing. Not one
8: of like probably the, but it's all right. I mean, we, I mean, let's be real. It's I, all good.
4: I mean, I, I gave you the buildup and you didn't even
8: hear it. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I mean, it's it is what it is. I appreciate you having me on. Uh how's life?
4: Life is life is uh life is good. I mean, heading into the off season with a uh, a lot of unknowns, but of course we'll have Acecast live going throughout the season and you know, like today we thought we were going to come on we are all going to talk World Series and then a kind of not a shocker, we thought it would go down, but I didn't know it was going to go down this fast. And you've played for like a Charlie Manuel, an older manager. What'd you think yeah. with your Hall of Famer, Tony LaRusa, taking over the Chai Sox at 76 years old? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure because I, I grew up, you know,
8: giant days. Those are my, my teams. And uh, Tony LaRusa obviously is one of those guys that's uh, a legend in your mind. Um, with the young and extremely talented and flamboyant team that the White Sox are, I wonder if it's the right fit. I do. I do. Do they need leadership? Absolutely. And will he provide that? Absolutely. But is he going to be okay with, you know, certain things of, you know, people? And it's like, look, the guy's going to adjust to the analytic world. He's been involved in so many organizations with the analytics. So that's not the one thing that bothers me. It's the openness of the player that I wonder if he's going to be good with. And I don't know if you're the same way with it, but, I mean, I look at him as being as old school as they come, right? and someone that uh, uh, can manage and, and do stuff about the game. But it's certain things about the, uh, the player that I wonder if he is, is good for with this White Sox team.
4: Well, the thing that I think he needs to do is he needs to channel Tony Larusa from the late 80s because he had one of the most flamboyant teams in the history of the game. When you got Jose Canseco, and you've got Dave Henderson and Ricky Henderson and Dennis Eckersley and on and on and on, the Bash Brothers and Mark McGuire, that, th- those late 80s teams. I mean, Canseco's coming out of Badonna's apartment in New York. Ricky Henderson's picking his jersey, and he's got the home run trout. I mean, they, they were a flamboyant group. So if he's done it then, why he should be able to do it now. I mean, that
8: that is 30 years ago. You know, and so we don't know how people react in, in a thirty-year span, how they change, and you know what what's going to go on as far as any of that. So, um, yeah, I'm like, dude, it's exciting. Come on, it's pretty LaRusa. I mean, it's one of the greatest managers in the history of the game. So it's not like I'm going to sit here and bash him. You know, it's not bad. It's just the fact that like it's it's just different because we've we've gone to energy, we've gone to a different level of thinking away from the manager. Am I surprised? Absolutely, because we've gone so far away from that. With you know, just the the you know the numbers pushers and all these guys that are just going to be like, yes to the GM, whatever you say, I will do. He's not going to do that. He's going to fight back a little bit. But you know what? At the same time, uh, this team, this White Sox team that he has, that he's going to be coming into, uh, it's, damn, they're good. Yeah, you know they they are damn good, and they're fun to watch. They were fun to watch get beat by the A's.
4: Yeah, we got to see it firsthand. They, they're, 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 they're tough, and this is a group that's coming after you. And that's what, and, and that's why I got to think Tony is smart enough from a standpoint to where this isn't like. A, this isn't like him managing the A's or the Cardinals and he's going to be there a long time and he can weed out guys and build it in his image. He needs to win today or I should say yeah. as soon as the season starts. I think Tony's yeah, got to be smart sure. to know This is a long-term project. You've got to win with this group and this group you got to get to buy in.
8: Yeah, and you, you wonder if management for the White Sox is going to be putting him with a younger guy as well, right? Like someone that is there in the organization to kind of mold and see how, you know what I mean? Like that's the only thing that I'm thinking with this whole thing is like, this is a great move. If you have the next one in, in mind, and that next one in mind is, is someone that is maybe just off the field or whatever that needs maybe a little coaching, maybe a little bit of whatever about how to manage, maybe instead of doing the minor league way, they're going to go, you know, that route. So, and I wonder if that's, that's a part of it. It'll be interesting how he sets up his staff. Obviously, we've seen the staffs that he's he's had in uh, in, in St. Louis in recent years, uh, you know, and and they're just phenomenal. Uh, the development of those players in general in that organization were always phenomenal. So uh, it'll be interesting, um, but I also think that there's more to it uh, as far as the building of this franchise and building of the players within it already. Right? There's a lot of future that is there Uh, and and what's coming up next. So
4: I, I think you just made a great point. And I don't know the white Sox organization enough to, to answer that, but yeah, that would be, you get a young guy who probably a lot of the young players already know he learns like a mentor, Tony LaRusso is like his mentor. So when Tony's ready to fully retire, he just hands over the reins and you just keep it going, and that guy leads these young players as they all get into their prime. I love that idea. We'll see if that's going to happen. Now that you've had a couple days to think about it, and you did a great job on SiriusXM, and uh, I was listening to you and Mike Farron breaking down the World Series. Uh, Now that you've had a couple days to think about it, how would you feel it went down?
8: Um, The best team won. Truly the best team won. But it sucks that the best team won on a decision – by an organization not by the manager i'm gonna say by the organization that really stripped away uh a huge you know part of the story in in, in baseball history uh, what Blake blakesdale was doing was something special and it, it's unfortunate i understand completely what the rays are all about but look if you look at Blake Snell's, you know, splits, he's a two, he goes like two, It's I can't remember what it was, like 204, first time through, 234, the second time through, 247, uh, the third time through in his career. This year it was 140, 307, 304. So if they're going by the numbers, shouldn't they have taken him out after the first time through the order, right? <laughs> you know, and, and, and you, look at, you look at Mookie Betts, Mookie Betts, the third time he faces a starting pitcher this year, third time, he's in 229. And his OPS is in the, in the 700s. The, you can say the same thing about Corey Seager. He's 1130 first time through and the second time through OPS-wise. He's 760 in the third time through facing that guy. So I, I just said, like, none of that added up to me. None of it did. The eye test, the numbers, nothing. I mean, there's, there is – 29 fastballs that he threw, and not one of them was put in play. Come on, you're going to tell me as, as Joe Girardi this year with the Phillies told me. Joe Girardi told me that the only way that you're going to be able to, you know, open and say that the numbers are going to play out is if the guy that you're bringing in is better. And it, did they have anyone
4: better? Nope. Oh. And, so, and and how about this? I've been I've been using I've been using this line, and, and I like how you just said it's an organizational decision on what they did, obviously. But you managed Game Six of the World Series the way you managed June sixth, and I'm not managing the World Series the way I managed June sixth. So well, I, I mean, look.
8: Here's the other thing, County, is that like you are not talked about this. I will always. I will always have the, the feeling and the understanding of the situation. We Jordan Zimmerman was taken out against the Giants. Our our national team was better than the Giants. We had our ace at that time. Our ace in Game Two of the DS and fourteen got taken out. Eighty two thirds through his hundredth pitch, just walked Joe Panic, who had a hell of an at bat that took two balls that were half, like maybe a half a ball off the plate. They were balls, absolutely hundred percent balls never going to say that oh we got screwed in the situation no they were balls but he was dialed in it wasn't like he missed you know like just crazy they they squared up two balls the entire night by matt williams coming one step out of the dugout and pointing right to the to the uh, bullpen to drew storm drew storm was a, a fantastic closer for us he was not better than jordan zerman that night guaranteed. no one was better than jordan No matter who you were bringing in, I don't care. That situation, it's amazing to think that I cannot forget about the dugout. The dugout of the Giants and how excited they were when he got taken out. Well, that was the same thing as the Dodgers. I acquainted with Mike yesterday on MLB was that, look, there is a difference between being baffled and frustrated. You did not see a Dodger team that was frustrated. You were not having teams that was frustrated because, oh man, we're just, you know, we're squirting them up and doing this and we're just getting into bad luck. No, you didn't have that. You had baffled, baffled hitters. They had no clue what was coming. They had nothing. They had no idea. You talk about Blake Snell, who pretty much his entire career has been, you know, he crowds right-handed hitters. What was he doing that was so successful? He was able to steal strike one away. He's. Fastballs away the way and getting takes on it. And it was like, uh oh, as a hitter, when you go into a plan where you are convinced that he's going in, and this guy is now able to spot up away. And then he was able to go up in the zone, brings in his slider and his curveball. Not as much as you would have thought. And he has his chance. He has four pitches. Like he, the, the sequencing that he had to some of the guys, he still had pitches to go to. Mookie Betts had, had seen like five fastballs, three curveballs, a slider, and a changeup. Somebody, it was something like that like that's nothing you know you had a guy like Corey Seager. he saw he saw fastball change he saw fastball curveball that's it nothing else so you're gonna tell me that he had nothing else to show him that third time through you know he was so sharp in what he was doing and he was so convicted in what he was doing as an organization like you can't just rest on the numbers and well, numbers I, I don't know. It just to me the eye test in that situation in an elimination game, that it that is what's in front of you. There is no numbers in behind you, ahead of you, or whatever. It is the moment.
4: I love how you say on this night. Because later on for me as a fan, we got Paul Hendikinis. He's got all the numbers of why it was the right move. And my whole thing is this one game's different, and the way it's playing out, it's different. And if you're yep. going to try to, if you're going to try and defend the move of saying, you know, the numbers all show that that was the right move to be made. Well, then I'm going to show you all these other moves, saying bringing in Nick Anderson, who's been getting lit up, that wasn't the right move, the right yep. guy to bring in. Yep, I mean, look, it's
8: a major league record, right? And in, in the amount of uh, consecutive outings that he had given up a run, And he'd been dominant. We'd seen him with the Phillies. Uh, you know the previous year, and, and then uh, this year when he was in Tampa, the last series of the year, he was just like he was filthy. But he was not that in the playoffs. And here's the other thing: conversely, you know, Dave Roberts, like right as Urias came in, I tweeted out, and Urias better be closing this because there was a guy like this is before he even through the first pitch, like you knew had their number, correct? Like just so already it was he, he had he had the raise. And he comes in, deals on the first guy he faces. And it was like, all right, what's Dave Roberts going to do? Puts him out there. And then you're talking about like a dude rolling through in the eighth and you're going, oh, there's zero chance he, he, he can go to the 10. And he didn't. You know, numbers I'm, – I'm sorry. I don't think the numbers would have said keep Urius in. Yeah. But what, what we saw was the same thing. Again, you go back to 14. What Boach saw with, with us and how his team – was just uplifted by a guy being taken out in that same postseason in the World Series in Game 7. He saw Bum. He looked in that other dugout, and he saw defeat. He saw the Royals that were defeated when everything went down. Bum comes in. There was no way he was going to take him out, right, in that situation. He saw a team that was like they had no chance. They were They were beaten by the person that was coming in. And, it, it, you know, unfortunately for Nick Anderson, he didn't come through in that situation. But think about it. He was being cheered by the, by the Dodgers dugout coming in. Guaranteed. He was rolling in where most teams are going, oh, man, it's Nick Anderson. Damn it. And instead, he was coming in from the dugout where you had a Dodger team rolling right there. Like, yeah, bring him in. You know, they were calling for him. And that is a different deal on the psyche. And it, it really, it really got to Nick Anderson. Maybe not that part. It's just the fact that, like, the moment was big and, and he didn't come through.
4: Do you get the sense that there are some organizations that are so hell-bent on the numbers that they're willing to lose, but as long as they do it their way? Like, they're not going to make change. Yeah. This is how we do it. And I'll go down with the way we do it. i rather lose than do it another way.
8: Yes. I, I think as we've seen with a lot of these numbers, we could talk about how intricate the numbers are and how, you know, certain teams have the, the database and, you know, data sets that, that, that work for them and stuff, instead of being like, look, each game is its own like the, the 162 I get it. But when it gets to the playoffs, the emotion is not the same. Again, you cannot quantify quantify what emotion brings to anything and everything, whether it's a pitch whether it's a batter in the box watch, you know, seeing that pitch, what is his heartbeat? What is all this stuff? You cannot quantify that in that moment because the, that the, that moment, those playoff moments are way bigger than anything that they've ever faced in the, in the regular season. And unless you're Radio Rosarena or you're Corey Seager, I mean, those are two guys that are on different levels, but yes, I do believe that teams are willing to do that because look, they put all their eggs in one basket with, with the numbers. They have simplified in their minds, what, decision making should be done and made in in and throughout that organization so I I hundred agree there I mean there's there's no deviating from the plan there really isn't because if there's if there's a team that's gonna you know show us that they can deviate it would be the Rays, or it didn't
4: let's end on this how, how do you how do you, we're seeing a bunch of guys options be declined we're gonna see a flooded uh, free agent market what do you think this offseason is going to be like for free agency and players?
8: Poof, um, you know I want to say it's going to be the NFL the very first two days of, of free agency. I want I just want to believe that, and then they're going to be it's going to be really cold, and then it's going to get really hot when when we understand what's going to happen as far as more towards next year. Um, but I'm almost leaning towards there's going to be more. February signings than we've ever seen in, our, in the history of the game. And I'm, I'm nervous for that. And, you know, there, there's so many things. DA and all this stuff, it's like there's a lot of things that they need to conquer in this year. And I wonder how many teams are willing to take chances now on these – like maybe – or even guys, like, hey, I'll take a one-year deal. You're going to give it to me early? You're going to give me that much money early? I wonder how many of those are going to be out there, you know? And, you know, the one that I, there's so many guys that are out there that are so, you know, exciting to know that they're on the market. JT being one of them uh, is not exciting for me because I'm a a Phillies guy and uh, I want him back here, but I'm excited for him knowing that he gave himself this opportunity, right. As far as hitting free agency. Um, I'm so, I, I I just, I'm hoping Marcus Simeon lands somewhere and whether it's, Oakland, back in Oakland, or, you know, Billy, somewhere where he is going to be loved. Because that is one hell of a player. And that's the one guy I'm so excited about for this offseason. And and knowing that he can get a market, He is young enough. He is so damn good. And he's made himself into that being so good. I, I mean, it's not, it's not even – it's just the fact that you and I have talked about him so much and the appreciation for a guy like him. I am, I am so excited for that guy.
4: When are you coming home?
8: I don't know yet. A uh, little man isn't ready to fly yet. So, you know, DJ's, uh, what, he'll be a month old on Tuesday, and, and exciting times for us. My parents were here for two weeks. My uh, mother-in-law was here for a week, which was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just know I'm, I'm playing golf on your tab when I get home.
4: Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I, yeah, right. we'll go to Hoppus. We'll go out to Cinnabar yeah. Hill. Come on.
8: I, I, I we do miss home let's just be honest but it is it's been so the Philly family and everyone around here has been so great to us and and you know the, it's just a little, little a little a little colder. a little colder right now, right? <laughs> Yeah, but I,
4: I mean we want to know. Our yes, we want to know. We want a home game against a D1 team to start the Can season. Can you believe that? Oh. I was like
8: oh,
5: man, man. I
4: was like, it took me back to the days of Grambling. When they showed up and we whooped that, you know what
8: I mean? But oh wait, they weren't even they were one double A then.
5: <laughs> yeah, it
4: was uh, it was like the first time since like nineteen eighty seven or something like that.
8: Was was uh which which Garcia was the uh the quarterback then? Hmm. It might have been mike
4: have been Mike eighty mike. Mike Perez five. It yeah, been Mike Perez. It would have been Perez. That's unbelievable. Sad. That's all right. We're back on it. We're back on it. One and oh, baby. Hey, so when I'm teeing off tomorrow at 10 o'clock and I'm putting sunscreen on, I'm going to send you the picture just so. That's you know, fine. That's have fine.
8: That's fun to be jersey. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a picture of me rolling out of bed at the same time, okay?
4: <laughs> well, congratulations to you and your wife. It's always special. And uh, can't <laughs> wait to have you home.
8: You're the best, dude. Thanks for having me.
4: That's homegrown right there. That's San Jose, San Jose State. A guy who was born in Los Gatos. That's homegrown right there. That's a Bay Area kid doing well on the East Coast as he's doing radio now for the Philadelphia Phillies.
5: Hey, the, the Spartans got a big game this week, and I'm not talking about Michigan State versus Jim Harbaugh. I'm talking who? about your San Jose State Spartans taking on New Mexico State at that's home Spartan on Halloween. Up. That's all you need to know. Spartan up. Hey, I'll give you a name to remember. Derek Deese Jr. Not his dad, Jr. He's he's he looked good in that first game, I'm telling you. He looked good. Derek the Diesel, Derek Deese owes me a
4: golf bag. At a golf tournament, he ruined my bag. He was supposed to get me a new bag, and I never got a new bag from the former USC Trojan Derek Deese. Well, since we're not allowed, since we're not allowed into the into the stadium, because I'm sure he would be there. Can you imagine if I just walked out? Hey, you owe me a golf bag.
5: He'd be like, "Who the hell are you?" He, yeah, who? Who? Who are you? As Kevin Durant once said, "Who are you? Why do I got to talk to you?"
4: <laughs> you know, Franny makes great points. I love Franny on the radio. I thought the point about having a young guy with Tony La Russa, to, like, groom, like, why not, you know, sit there and learn uh, from the master?
5: Exactly. That's a smart move. I I, I don't think the White – I mean, I could be wrong. I'm with you. I don't know the White Sox organization as well as other people do. And, like, I, don't, the only guy I ever really knew with the White Sox was Don Cooper, and he's not there anymore. And Hawk Harrelson, who's not there anymore, he retired. So, I think having a young manager who can take over for Tony in a couple of years is a smart play for all those young players they have. Uh, you got to find the right guy, though. And he has to put together the right staff for this team because they had a lot of expectations last year, and then he—they're going to have even more this year. I still think Minnesota is still the team to beat in that division. But uh, with the Indians not bringing back Brad Hand, they're looking for a reliever, and who knows what goes on with Lindor? Although we might—he might not get moved at all because of how much money he's going to want. So, a lot of pressure—a lot of pressure on Tony, but he's done well with the pressure on him. So,
4: and I got to tell you. His point of tonight, tonight, this game right here. The data says this, Chris. Yeah, but tonight's different. This is a different situation. This is game six. Yeah, but look what happened in game two. Look what happened in another postseason. Look what happened during the regular. Tonight's a different night. You went away from the hot hand. For a guy who hasn't been hot, who set the the record for most consecutive outings, giving up at
5: least one run. It was six coming into that, and then he gave up a run again. He gave up runs in eight of his ten appearances in the postseason. You're
4: not bringing in in Marion Rivera, Raleigh Fingers, or whatever uh, you want to talk about, Hall of Fame reliever. And everybody's going to try. It. Well, these are the numbers, and this is what I understand. What the numbers are? Did Dave Roberts go chalk at the end of Game Six, saying, "I got a starter out there, Urias, who's just who's just he's feeling it." I mean, the numbers would have been to take him out, right? No. Look what the D backs did with Randy Johnson in Game Seven. Look at what the Giants did with Mass and Baumgart. Are are these? Is that playing it by the book? No, I should say the data. No, that's going off a feel. Look at the Nationals last year. How many times did they use relievers to to win games? I mean, that they use starters as relievers to win games.
5: A lot. I mean, I feel like we saw Patrick Corbin pitch more in relief than anybody else last year for them when they're running through the Dodgers and then. Like they played the Cardinals in the NLCS, yeah, and then they played the Astros in the World Series. I feel like Corbin pitched more than anyone for them because they kept using Scherzer and everyone else, and then Corbin would come in and Anibal Sanchez was good for them last year. They they had all the right they had all the right components last year for them, and we saw a lot this year. They kind of took a step back, but yeah, they should have – Cash should have stayed with feel instead of running with the numbers, and he said after the game. There's no set plan like you're going into this. I I, I just didn't buy it, and I'm a, and I'm a big defender of Cashy, my good friend, in the analytics movement because I th- I think it's right it's the way the Rays do it. But that's one of those instances where you just throw that those numbers out the window and you just go off a of field. And yeah, the and you look at it, those three guys coming up against Snell next were 0 for six with six strikeouts the two times he faced them. So, I mean, I don't know why I, I, I don't get it, and it's something he's got to think about for a long long time.
4: Coming up next, Dallas Braden will join us right here on A's Cast Live.
1: Streaming from the town, A's Cast Live continues with Chris Townsend.
4: That's right. It is A's Cast Live with A's broadcaster from NBC Sports, California. The great Dallas Braden joins us here on Ace Cast Live. Dallas, it's been a while. have you been?
3: Tony? I've been good, man. I've, uh... well, what is this now? Day two with, it's day two, no baseball. It feels like, already feels like three weeks with no baseball, and it also feels like the game hasn't ended yet, all at the same time. I don't know if that's even possible, but that's, that's just kind of what it feels like, because it wasn't like it was the last pitch of the World Series, and then everything was over with. That's not exactly how this thing ended.
4: Well, I got to You know, I enjoyed so much of just every night having multiple games. Oh, yeah. I mean, not having the days off. And and then, like, after the series, okay, you get a day off, then you go to the next series. I think this playoff was one of the most enjoyable for me as a baseball fan. We got more baseball than ever before. And just the fact we had it every night, it was awesome.
3: It was incredible. I myself, um, I mean, with the – with the podcast that I have with Barstool Sports, we had a uh, two or three days in a row. We streamed for twelve straight hours. We just watched every baseball game as they started every hour on the hour, and it was incredible. It was. I had three meals in my office watching baseball with our fans. It was incredible, and it, and those are just some of the adjustments. Yeah. yeah. You got to make you know in in the business side of things during this different playoff atmosphere, this different format. But from a fan standpoint, I mean, you you touched on it. Baseball every day, multiple times a day, and early on during this thing, it was damn near round the clock, and there was nothing more exciting. At least in at least in my world, in my life, there was nothing more exciting than base than a new set of arms towing the slab every hour, getting ready to write their organization's story in this ridiculously chaotic postseason.
4: Yeah, starting like at 1 o'clock, and then our last game's at 645. It was just, you know, ha- having your computer on along with your TV or being able to have as many games on as possible. And then they started putting together like a, a red zone for the playoffs, which I was like, man, why can't we have that every night?
3: Because... Uh, there's there's something about the people who are, quote-unquote, listening to the fans that are consuming the sport. Something about those people who are in position to be listening. I don't know that if we ran them out to that school bus that we all went to in elementary school, put the headphones on and raise your hand when you hear the beep. I don't know that they're passing that test, Townie. I don't know that they're listening to much. If anything... At all from the people who are consuming the sport, because the blueprints have continued to be laid out for you by the NFL when it comes to how they are disseminating their product over the over the platforms and different avenues and different ways of consumption. How do you not provide that for people? How? Why would you not? And we can get into the money bubble. But look, how amazing was that? to be able to know that you can dial in right here and you're going to get, like, you know, pitch-to-pitch, moment-to-moment type stuff? You mean to tell me that you're not excited about that on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of August, barbecue blazing, chicken smelling up the entire neighborhood, and come on over here because we've got this Bryce Harper AB about to go down right now. Like, you can have that. That's real. You
4: know what I like? I like the multiple screens and they just... The broadcaster takes you to the next game. That's the but all the other games stay on the screen. Sure, it's just, you switch over to the game where there's a situation where a guy could score, and you just keep flipping around. But you keep all the games on. But the the broadcaster, the guy who's back in the studio, just keeps flipping around where the most action is.
3: And 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 what what a group would find out very very quickly is if you stay in your space and you realize that you're providing not necessarily a competitive way to watch this game, but you're, you're just, you're providing an alternative. Like you can watch the game however you'd like. You could also watch the sport and watch multiple games like this. And what you'll find out very quickly is if you can do that, well, you no longer become an alternative. You become the go-to you become the way that people who are just flipping through the channels would love to watch 10, 15 minutes half an hour of baseball, but just can't for whatever reason, kids screaming, job, school, can't dial in for three and a half hours, but they know that they could go to DB and Uncle Tony and watch 30 minutes of crazy at-bats all throughout the league. That'd be a great landing spot for baseball fans.
4: You and I could do that show easy.
3: I could do that standing on my head underwater, Tony
4: <laughs> and that would get us ratings.
3: <laughs> Bringing the speedo,
5: baby.
4: Oh man, I'm. You know, that's the thing. I'm, I miss watching you guys every single night. You know, from an Ace perspective, before we get uh, into some of the questions about the World Series, what would you like to see with this roster coming up here in this off season?
3: You know, it's 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 interesting because there are some decisions to be made right there are some decisions to be made uh which way do you want to attack this thing offensively up the middle can we include Marcus Simeon in the plans moving forward the ability to work backwards from a bullpen standpoint and pencil in a guy like Liam Hendricks and then let the rest of it shake out behind it but You've got answers to potentially fill that hole should you not be able to bring him back with a guy like Jake Deakman. Um, So I think it's going to be a question of where I think the organization feels like their strengths in the minor leagues and or on the outside of that 25 core looks like. Where are you best suited to be able to bring reinforcements in without feeling like you're not competitive? And if that's on the position player side, then I can see them really trying to figure out what they're going to do in that starting rotation, because there's got to be some, there's got to be some give and take there, right? Bassett has, has planted his flag. Um, You're going to continue to give those opportunities to Lazardo as we see him grow. Um, I, I think what we saw is there's, there's obviously pop in that lineup, but, if the usual usual suspects aren't there and aren't clicking, and we can point to the the step back that KD took, then then where does the juice come from? And maybe that's something you pay attention to. They went out and got Jake Lamb for a reason. Obviously, Matt Chapman's down, but Jake Lamb fit a he fit a bill that they were looking for. Power potential, maybe from the left side as well. Um second base is gonna have to get decided, Townie. I would love to see. I would absolutely love to be able to tell fans of the Oakland A's that you're going to watch Chad Pender get 500 at-bats. I would love to be able to tell Oakland A's fans that. And I think he's earned that right. How? I mean, come on. What the guy did in the postseason, bad hammy, stepping up. I mean, the dude's grit is there, but I mean – has he not, I don't want to say paid his dues, but has he not given you every reason to believe that he's the warrior that goes out on his shield and has earned the right to, to finally get that everyday opportunity because he showed you like to a point that it almost teases you like, damn, I'd love to see Chad Pinder every day in left field. I'd love to see Chad Pinder every day at, Third base, Well, we can't. We got Matt Chapman there. Well, what about shorts up? He can play shorts up. We've seen him do that. Dallas, we have Marcus Simeon. Okay. Well, wow. He's not playing first over Ole. And it's almost like, what if they had another infield position that we could give Chad Pender a ton of look at, a ton of at bats at, that could potentially bolster the lineup and the death chart? What, what, isn't there? Because if I'm counting, I'm going around the horn. There's home plate, there's third. The guy that stands in between third and second, he plays, oh, Sure. That's right. Second base. Second base, Tony.
4: I don't know. I, yeah. I I'm. I, I remember the last post game show after they got eliminated. I was like, can we can we find I in our last Bob Melvin show? I asked him about it. I like, Can we finally just give this guy an opportunity? He's a better athlete than you think. He's got better power than you think. I mean, he's obviously a very good athlete, former shortstop. I mean, that, it's, kind of, it's kind of a no brainer. And he's well,
3: and, and, and it's and it's it's that. <laughs> you take uh you take the temperature of the room within that within that room and to a man you, you, they'll tell you who's uh like who's got the most juice who's got the most pop chad pinder's name if it's not the first one out of a guy's mouth they don't end the conversation without telling you oh and by the way don't sleep on chi that's how that goes and when you have dudes like matt olson and Chris Davis with just light tower power telling you that there's very well, another guy that we need to be talking about. You pay attention to stuff like that because you're also paying attention to the versatility that you see. So there's no way for me, Chad Pender isn't on the radar to, to finally fill a void that I think Oakland had been trying to find a, an answer and a solution to for a while via the, you know, Barretto and machine and, so we'll see.
4: You know, Jesus Lazardo, it, it, it was tough for me because so many people, and, and you love the kid, but so many people are coming on my show going, he's the A's best pitcher. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, slow down. You don't, I mean, basically in September through the playoffs, he had an ERA over five. Mm-hmm. He struggled. Mm-hmm. He's got electric stuff, but he's not a pitcher yet. And I oh, want sure. your opinion because of his size. It seems that everything's coming in through the same playing whether it's his fastball, his breaking ball, change-up's really good, but everything is not – it's not like you're a guy like Mark Mulder and you're the tall guy or you're like glass now and it's coming down on you. It's really kind of like the same plane for the hitters, and a lot of it's kind of the same speed. Everything's hard, and that's where I think he gets hit hard because people get used to it. What do you think he could do to become more of a pitcher than a thrower?
3: It's about understanding why oh. he's getting the results he's getting. And I always start talking about with young guys, I, I use a phrase called honing their cone. Hone your cone. And that means your misses. If you look at a strike zone and you look at where a guy is executing, there's probably a lot of dots outside of the strike zone in the lower levels. You think AA, A, And that's because guys are kind of spraying the zone, right? They've got great stuff. They can compete in the zone early, but when it comes to putting guys away, they, they haven't quite figured out how to work off of a miss that they have intentionally created. So throwing that fastball two and a half inches off the black in because you're going to throw your change up, maybe about an inch and a half or so off away, knowing that that's the process you're going to employ and execute has a lot to do with how guys progress because if you're just up there waiting for the sign to be put down, maybe you aren't necessarily thinking your way through this game. And that's not the case with these guys because Lazardo does his homework and Sean Murphy does his homework. As far as stuff goes, just a pure stuff uh, point that you're making with high velocity. A lot of it is hard. Maybe there is some attention paid to, uh, the blending of the breaking balls, right? Because they'll drop a slower one in there for strike one, and then it'll really bury that hard one towards the back foot. Uh, throwing that pitch for strikes more can help him because as we saw, Glass now work through this postseason. What'd you see? You saw those hitters just, look, either throw the curveball for a strike twice at this point, or we're just not going to swing at it. And we're going to hammer your 100-mile-an-hour heater when you decide to throw that anywhere near the strike zone. And that's what the opponents can start to do to guys is they eliminate things that you just can't throw for strikes. And so now you're 96, 97 with good life from the left side um, isn't as sexy as you want it to be. And you're thinking, why? Well, it's because the other weapons that make it as good are now non-factors because you can't command those pitches. So there's a difference between throwing your repertoire and pitching with your repertoire and him understanding how to pitch with his stuff and learn to add a little subtract a little maybe with the changeup right instead of really driving that ball through the zone like he does with the fastball maybe it is a matter of and and I'm just I'm using a phrase here but putting it a little deeper in the back of your hand which would just mean figuring out a way to reduce a little more velocity but those are just little things that can be paid attention to in his side work during the offseason and once we get into spring training. So I think spring training will be a big, big point of emphasis for Lazardo to really start refining his ability to add and subtract at game speed.
4: You're on the mound in the World Series, and you're dealing
3: – I'm losing my mind, Tony. I'm losing my mind. I'm fighting everybody within arm's distance.
4: I I asked Rick Honeycut earlier. I said, "What would what would have happened if Dave Stewart's out there rolling and Tony La Russa comes out in a World Series game to try and take him out?" He's like,
3: "Yeah, that ain't happening." I'll tell you what happens. I'll <laughs> tell you what happens right now. Larry Davis has to roll out there with a damn stretcher to <laughs> wheel Honey off the mound. That's what happens. You're going to have to call a trainer to clean up that mess that Stu just left out there for you. For you to even think about sending somebody out there to go get him. Like they went and got Blake Snell. Absolutely can not happen. He was robbed of a legacy moment. The organization was robbed of a legacy moment, in my opinion. And I said this we don't know what it would have looked like at the end of it all at the at the end of 9 we don't know what it was guaranteed to look like we had a pretty damn good idea going into that though a really really good idea of what it could have looked like and for that to happen right there and it's it's funny to think that the numbers that you had so heavily relied upon to get you to where you are are exactly what got you to where you are. Does that make sense? Totally. Cause, cause
4: so many people are trying to defend it going. That's what they you do. And can't. then you're like, you, you, okay, well, the guy you're bringing in has just been historically bad. I know he had a good regular season, but if you're still Dallas, I, I, I'm going to keep saying this. You can't play game six of the world series. Like it's June six of the regular season.
3: And, and you can't play it with your calculator, and here's the thing. We know calculators are a part of the game. And I, I understand, and nobody will tell you more than me, that numbers are important. They play a role. They're necessary and needed at this point for players. What you need to understand, if you're that numbers individual, if you're the think tank, all right, let me explain something to you. I don't want the splits of the switch hitter over the course of the entire season when I'm facing him in October. You want to know what the splits I want to pay attention to? Show me his splits the last two weeks. Show me what he's been doing against guys like me the last two weeks. I don't care what the entire seasons look like. You want to know why? Because we're way past that point, aren't we? We are way beyond that point. So I'm going to need the most recent chunk of information that I can have. I'm talking right now, real-time data. What do you got for me, nerd? What do you got? That's what I want. And you want to know what was available? Real-time data. Real-time information that was telling you the next three hitters that Blake Snell was about to face were 0-for-6 with six punch-outs. The real-time data was telling you that the first four hitters in that lineup were 0-for-8 with seven punch-outs. That's what the real-time data was telling you. So for you to make a decision based on what was popping off in May is a farce, and you should be absolutely ridiculed for it the way you are because there's no hiding behind that. I said this. It's almost as if managers these days are given two pools, two lists of decisions that they can make, all right? Pool A is the decisions that you can make based on the numbers and there's no arguing the result. You made that decision based on the numbers we gave you. It is what it is. Live with the result. You keep your job. Or pool B. Sure, you can make your decisions based on gut and feel, but should you fail in those moments, we're going to keep track of those times that you've failed. And those will start to accumulate points. And so if you accumulate x amount of gut points that led to losses, that created failure, well, now understand, we reserve the right to fire you because it's clear that your feel decisions didn't work out. So managers get to make a decision. Do I pull from pool A? Let the numbers defend my decision making and I don't have to apply any feel whatsoever? Or Do I want to lean on the wisdom that I've accumulated as a guy who spent my entire life on a baseball field? And do I want to tap into the feel and what I'm actually witnessing right now in real time? Because if I do, and I think that's the way to go, I'm going to make that decision. But if I like my job, I know what decision I should make or I know what the safe decision is. And it feels like that's where managers have been boxed into now. Hate it. It's terrible. I mean? It's no way to watch the game. It's no way to manage the game. It's no way to play the game. Not at all. Not at all. Because I've always said this. You want to know why And baseball, one of the toughest games to, uh, if you were going to responsibly gamble in an area where it was legal for you to do so? If you were going to do that on baseball, um, you want to know what can screw you, Tony real quick on any day? A guy like me making it to the field and and actually going out and making my start like I'm the worst thing that can happen to anybody who's trying to bet on the game of baseball and if at any point in time someone wants to interject on that kind of a day and go hey I know things are going good right now but we all know what the computer says too you're all done here thanks for six innings what (laughs) you wouldn't have a perfect game Dowdy, i'd be in jail because people would have been bleeding
4: (laughs) you are the best my friend we miss you we miss seeing you it's glad to see you in your little home
3: studio there and uh let's catch up soon absolutely cody hey don't be shy my friend i see you got a microphone attached to that a headset big love for you brother i want to congratulate you guys um hey not an easy year not an easy year at all By any stretch, when it comes to executing, getting things in place to be executed, Townie, you are very lucky to have a guy like Cody. We are very lucky to have guys like you continuing to beat the drum for the club. So thank you guys very much. You're the best. We'll be in touch. All right, boys. We'll see you. Thanks, Tom. Great.
4: Alex Braden, join us here on A's Cast Live. He just brings it. Brings the energy. Brings the opinions. It's what we're about. Yeah, Chad Pender, I think, is a good call, and it's something we've talked about. Let him play. And don't be one of these sayings, hey, we're worried about splits, and we're worried about... No, just, just know, Tad, you're coming to the ballpark. You're going to be in the lineup, and bring that glove that you use for second base. Now, if you re-sign Tommy Listella, I'm all in on that. If I had to bet, I would bet the one area that they are going to go and try and keep them, I think it's going to be Marcus. I think they know what Marcus means to the clubhouse, the team, the skipper, the fan base. Uh, I think Marcus is going to be the one target.
5: I agree. I think that's the guy you have to, He's been here. He's gone through the the ups and downs since coming over from the White Sox. I think that's the guy you make your number one priority. Hometown kid, and then you figure things out. And with Tommy Listelle, if if you can't get him to come back, a guy that was recently just uh, they didn't pick up his option. The the Cardinals didn't pick up Colton Wong's option. Colton Wong would be a great defensive second baseman to come play for the A's. If you want to go with Chad Pinder, I'm great. I'm oh, completely okay with that too. I think he needs the at bats. He played awesome in the postseason and we jokingly kept breaking down his splits against guys years prior just that I don't know what Dallas was saying about splits in the, over the season. Uh Pender has power and he showed it. I and I think this could be his time to to go if they don't bring back Tommy Lastella. So it's a very interesting offseason for the A's and Major League Baseball and as Franny said, he could see it what did he say like it could be like the NFL where we see the first couple of days people sign and then it could be kind of a dead period and then a bunch of people sign in February. So if, if I wouldn't panic if Marcus doesn't sign in the first couple days of free agency, but if he comes back in February, you know, and that that deal happens, then then that's gonna be great for the organization moving forward. We have no idea what's gonna look like. We have we have
4: we have absolutely zero idea what free agency player movement could be a lot, could be very little. Yeah, because we th- can... Commission- The commissioner of baseball said it on this show. The virus will dictate how the offseason goes. How many front offices, how many owners, let's be fair, are going to sit there and look at it and say, "Um, until we know how many games we're going to play, is it 162? Are there fans in the stands? I mean, you know, before you start handing out a ton of cash, and guaranteed cash long-term, it might be a little bit of a slow winner, which won't be shocking because that's kind of been the trend anyway. Harper, Machado, you know, they got Garrett Cole done early, but, you know, Rendon. But I'm not going to be shocked if we're going to – hey, they'll just give us stuff to talk about in January and February.
5: Yeah, I mean – Last offseason was great because we were in San Diego for the winter meetings when Garrett Cole signed and Strasburg re signed. And you and I were getting on a plane back to the Bay Area when Rendon signed with the Angels. And it was great. But then we really didn't see much happen after that. Well, actually, that's not true. The Astros story came out. So uh, that kind of carried us until we thought we were going to have spring training and a nor- normal schedule. And then, you know, we all know what happened after that. So I uh, agree with you. If, if we see a lot of moves happen in the next few months, it's going to be great. Coming up next.
4: Ray Fossey will join us right here on A's Cast Live
1: Now back to Ace Cast Live Here's Chris Townsend
4: It is a's cast Live, and the great Ray Fossey joins us here on a Thursday. A Thursday is now a Fosse day. Ray, how are you?
9: Tony could not be better, my friend. Cody, I hope you're doing well, but, Tony, I know you are because the Walnut Creek Chicken Pie Shop is up and running, and uh, you're making sure that that. So all things are good as far as I'm concerned, and uh, disappointed that the A's didn't go any farther than they did. But... You know, now that the Dodgers are world champions, um, we can start looking forward to 21 as baseball is officially over and we'll start to see what's going to be
10: happening.
4: By the way, 25% inside the restaurant now at the Chicken Pie Shop of Walnut Creek. So we have the outdoor seating, Ray, and now you can... Beautiful.
9: Well, you know, the food that you had brought to the press box during one of the games, actually the between games of a doubleheader, Outstanding food, so highly recommend the Chicken Pie Shop of Walnut Creek to anybody listening to go by, stop by, and especially dining in or dining outside. I think it's great. It's great food and the beverages. I don't know. See, I didn't partake in the beverages that you sent, what? but uh, some of some. Well, you know, I, I I was working, man. You know, so you know, I I didn't want to take a chance. You know, I I, I want to make sure that my brain was functioning properly. But you know, the uh, it, it was just great, great stuff. So. The delivery was perfect. The food was the best. And, uh, see, I like food. I like food. I'll leave my partners, uh, the other guys, to the beverages and, uh, you know, and, and get some get some normalcy. And maybe at that point, when everything's back to normal, then I'll partake in some of your great beverages.
4: I uh, cannot wait to have you at the restaurant, Ray. It'll be wonderful. Um, you know, the, the big news today, I mean, somebody you've known for a long, long time, and you know him well, Tony LaRusso. Yeah at 76 years old, is now going to be the manager of the White Sox. And we know how good these young White Sox are. We just saw that. How do you think this plays out? I think
9: with Tony La Russa as their manager, look out for the Chicago White Sox. You know, a little bit of a history. Back in 1986, when the A's hired Tony at the end of the season, he had a great run through the 89, going to the World Series three consecutive years. 89 world championship. And then he went on to the Cardinals, but he had about nine or 10 years here under the Haas family. And the A's were fortunate that our good friend, Hawk Harrelson made the decision to change managers. And Tony was out there and uh, Sandy Alderson at the time was doing the hiring and the Haas family and, and, and Sandy Alderson met with Tony. They hired him and the rest is history. You know, the last world championship here is 1989. So he's a great baseball person. I'll be very honest with you, Tony. I thought when Tony, uh, uh, Joe Torrey, Bobby Cox, Jim Leland, shortly thereafter, all retired, I thought, well, it's it's the old school way of thinking and the way things are, are going on now with regard to, to, well, you know, shifts and and. And the analytics and, and just like with uh, Blake Snell, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, coming out of the in the sixth <laughs> inning, you know, because uh, God forbid he goes through the batting order the third time. So, you know, the, the thing about Tony, he's a great baseball person. Uh, I think the White Sox are going to benefit. He, he, he speaks Spanish. So with a lot of Hispanics, I think there are four Cuban baseball players who are um, right in the middle of the lineup. And, you know, he speaks Spanish very fluently, you know. And so uh, I I think Tony, coming out of retirement, coming basically the Hall of Fame manager, uh, he'll get his number 10 back and he'll be managing the Chicago White Sox. I think they will be a force to reckon with in that Central Division, and not only in the division, but all throughout the postseason. uh, Because, you know, I I think it's, it's a great thing for him, a great thing. I mean, Jerry Reinsdorf, my goodness, can you imagine all these years since 1986 just having that wear on him thinking that what, what did we do? What did we do? And he goes on to win all these championships with the Cardinals and with the athletics. And I, and I think there's a reason that Tony being the person that he is went into the hall of fame with no logo on his cap because he did not want to downplay the success that he had with the white Sox, the athletics and the Cardinals. Now, uh, if I recall, I think he retired. Um, of course, Connie Mack's record of most, uh, most victories will never be surpassed because heck, when you own the club for 50 years, you can, you know, you're not going to fire yourself. But, uh, I, I can't, John, John McGraw, um, was number two and I think Tony number three and Tony doesn't need that many victories to, to be number two.
4: And Tony, he's, Tony, Tony, I believe he's four. four.
9: Is he fourth? Who, who's yeah. second and third?
4: Uh I, I guess Connie Coach. Mack. Who'd be who Tony Connie Larusa? Cody, will look Mack. it up quickly. That's what's Google's for, Cody. Come on. <laughs> and you know the one thing, Kev, our our buddy Kevin Franz made made a good point. Ray is what a, what a time for the White Sox to groom somebody, have somebody be the bench coach, sit there under Tony, yeah. and learn for a year or two, and then when Tony's ready to finally retire, retire, they just hand over the reins, and it's just a seamless transition.
9: You know, that's a great point, Tony, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more because, I mean, Tony Larusso it, it's really just like Ryan Christensen because I, I talked to Rhino about uh future for him, and he says, listen, I'm learning so much from Bob Melvin. He said, I'm in no hurry. He said, I, I'm enjoying being the bench coach because he said, I'm like a sponge that I watch everything that, that Bob Melvin does, how he reacts with the players, interacts with the players, and how he manages a game. And I think that's something that someone with Tony DeRosa could do the same thing. I mean, Tony wants to win. He's not coming back just to mentor somebody to take over. He wants to win. And I know Jerry Reinsdorf, I could only imagine that meeting. It's not a formality of saying, okay, we'd love to have you back. You're coming back full circle, coming back to manage the White Sox. Tony wants to win. And, you know, he's been in the front office of the White Sox, the, uh, the Red Sox just recently with the Angels. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard he was talking to Dave Dombrowski, he and Dombrowski were interested in uh, uh, having a franchise in um, – what was it down in the south?
5: Um, Nashville.
9: Nashville, Nashville, Nashville. And uh, I thought maybe ownership would be something that he'd be interested in. So whenever his name surfaced as a potential manager, I was a little bit stunned and even more stunned today when they made the announcement that he was hired. I'll be honest with you again, because I, I don't believe that anybody interviewing with the White Sox had any chance if Tony was really interested in managing, because as much as Jerry Reinsdorf won in 2005, never forget Paul Konerko giving him the baseball, at their big rally in downtown Chicago, he gave him the, the, the final out baseball. And, uh, you know, that was a present to Jerry Reinsdorf. So, you know, that's been a long time. So I, I think he wants to win again. And, um, you know, he's pulling out all the stops. He did it as, from a team standpoint, Mr. Reinsdorf did. But I think now getting Tony DeRosa, we'll see the interesting thing to me will be will Dave Duncan come out of retirement. To join him because he and dunk were always uh, you know two peas in a pod when he came to manager pitching coach don cooper has been there forever and has done a tremendous job so you know on one hand i'm hopeful that don cooper can stay but you know it wouldn't be surprising if tony talks dave duncan into coming back as his pitching coach well that remains to be seen but uh, but i'm happy for tony uh, i think the white Sox have to be ecstatic that he would come out of retirement and um it kind of reminds me, you know, when Ricky Henderson, I see Ricky at the park, and I said, man, you look in great shape. And he said, you know, Ricky can still play. I guess I can still play. And I said, well, why don't you come back? And he said, well, I'm in the Hall of Fame. And I said, so? I said, Jim Palmer tried it. He tried to come back, and unfortunately blew out his Achilles tendon and, and couldn't come back. But I said, there's no reason that because you're in the Hall of Fame that you can't come back and play. Take that number down on center field. I mean, it stays there, but you could wear it because it's retired for you. He goes, really? I said, yeah, really, Ricky, if you, you know, and Ricky's over 50, but Ricky believes he can still play. And, and you know what, never doubt what Ricky Henderson can do because that man is always in great shape. And, and um, you know, I, I just believe that what Tony's doing is exceptional and especially since he's in the hall of fame, I think it, I think it's great for baseball that he's coming out of retirement to manage. And again, I think it's going to be very, very beneficial for the Chicago white Sox.
4: All right, Cody, top five wins for managers in the history of the game. What's the top five?
5: So, Connie Max one. He only has 3,731 wins. Uh, John McGraw is second with 2,763 wins. Uh, Tony La Who's that, Cody? I'm sorry? John McGraw. John
9: uh, McGraw,
5: okay. Third is Tony. He's at 2,728, which he'll pass John McGraw this upcoming season because he's only, like, less than 30 games behind – or a little over 30 games behind right. him, wins behind him. Bobby Cox is four, Joe Torrey's uh, five, Sparky Anderson six, and then number seven is Bucky Harris. The, uh, the last guy that's not – those are all 2,000 wins. The last guy in the 2,000-win uh, club is Bruce Bochy. He's 11th with yeah. 2,003 career so, wins.
4: How many did Connie Mack have?
5: 3,731. <laughs> he also had 3,948 losses.
4: Okay, here's the most – he Here's Ray, this is the most impressive part of that statistic. He did that all in a three-piece wool suit in the humidity yeah. in Philadelphia.
9: <laughs>
4: and, you know, when,
9: when when the A's had that special day, how about when Art Howe came dressed as Connie Mack, I mean, in, in a suit managing the athletics, had the top hat, and he was in the suit in the dugout. I mean, that was special. But you're right. But still, if you're the owner of the club – you're not going to fire yourself. But the the thought that, that I had about Connie Mack, John McGraw, and, and Tony La Russa, and how close Tony was, I think Tony retired because he felt – I mean, he, he's a historian. He knows the game. And he knows that Connie Mack is never going to be surpassed. But also John McGraw was, was a very, very uh, important figure in the game of baseball. And I think Tony actually hung them up prior to – coming back again. I mean, he could have managed as long as he wanted to in St. Louis. And, but, but it seems like he wanted that record to stand with him being third behind Connie Mack and John McGraw. But Cody, like you said, um, now that he's going to be the manager, he, he will pass him and be number two of all time. And those other guys I don't think will come out of retirement. Um, I, I just believe that, you know, Bochi Bochy might, Bochy might come back. Matter of fact, I'd be surprised if he doesn't come back uh but uh I, I think it's good for for the, for the game i think it's great for chicago and i i couldn't be happier for them although the way the a's had to struggle against the white Sox, i have a feeling if tony russo's managing and nothing <laughs> against rick, rick rick ritteria but i think if tony russo had been managing they won game one i think the a's would have been trouble in games two and three that's just personally because having known tony seeing him when he came in 1986 and seeing when he left going to the Cardinals knowing him. Matter of fact, he and I played against each other when he was with the um, uh, Vancouver AAA team. And I was with AAA Portland and, and whenever he sees me, he calls me curtain and people say, well, why does he call you curtain? And he says, because every time I tried to score, the curtain would stand in front of home plate. And he's like the iron curtain. I had no chance to score. <laughs> so, so it was. It, it's kind of funny, but uh, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for him. But uh, I, I'm really. I, I'm glad the the White Sox are in the Central Division. But I think the White Sox are going to be important players in postseason for a lot of years because they're going to be a team to reckon with. They're already very good, as we saw in that three game series. And um, I'll be honest with you. I think it really helped that. Um, that the bullpen, I mean, so many pitchers pitching in that third game that it just got the point that it just wore down everybody. And that's it helped the A's be victorious and unfortunately couldn't do the same against the Houston Astros. But uh, again, that is the big news. And, uh, it, you know, Justin Turner's probably happy that Tony signed so they can take the, the spotlight away from him, considering what he did on Wednesday or, or Tuesday. In, in Arlington, after the Dodgers won the World Series. But what was your thought, uh, Tony? You and Cody, great baseball people. What did you think in the sixth inning, whenever Austin Barnes got a single, and here comes Kevin Cash to take out Blake Snell?
4: You live by the sword, you die by the sword. <laughs> and uh, I, th- my line today, Ray, has been this: you don't manage Game Six of the World Series like it's June 6th in the regular season. I Dave,
11: agree.
4: Dave Roberts, agree. Dave Roberts and the Dodgers have acted like that in the past, and they haven't won. This time yeah. around, he closed it out with a starter. He didn't go in the conventional analytic world. And the fact that there are so many people defending this decision, it just goes to show a problem in our game right now is people rather lose doing it their way than doing it opposite of what they're normally doing to win.
9: Man, you said it perfectly. I could not have said it any better than that. And I agree with you. And you know, what's the irony of that whole thing? If you look back, Cody, pulled this up too. 1991. Jack Morris pitching for the Minnesota twins on the exact day, October 27th, which is Tuesday uh, of this year. But in 1991, Jack Morris pitched 10 innings of shutout baseball. And the Minnesota Twins became world champions with a base hit with, um, you know, base hit to left field, infield, outfield, pulled in against the Braves. John Smoltz pitched against him, And it was a scoreless game, and Jack Morris was not coming out. I mean, I dare you to try to take him out of that game. And that was the irony of that, that this many years later, 1991 to 2020, that a pitcher comes out in the sixth inning because he's ready to go through the batting order the third time. How many times do you think Jack Morris went through the batting order against the Atlanta Braves in that World Series game? And he was dealing. I mean, ha- most of that was on adrenaline. And, and that's what you're talking about, Tony. because you get in those situations like that. You know, you, what, what might happen in June, when you get an elimination game in game six of World Series, Blake Snell was dealing. And if you looked at the first three guys in the lineup for the Dodgers, they each had struck out twice against him in the game. They had all struck out three times. And I know as a player, whenever there was a pitcher who was dealing, we're saying on the bench, somehow, some way, get him out of the game. We don't care if Cy Young comes in the game. We don't care who comes in the game because it's going to be different than what this guy is doing to us. We don't have a chance. It's not surprising that when Blake Snell came out, Bam, bam, bam. And there you are. You're down two to one after having a one to nothing lead. Who knows whether he would have pitched a shutout. The fact the, the, um, the race couldn't soar and didn't score any more runs. That hurt them tremendously. But man, you have a guy dealing like that. And, and I, you know, Blake still had to bite his tongue. I'm sure. And in the press conference and, uh, you know, with the mask on, you couldn't see, couldn't really tell what he was saying on the bench. But bottom line, I agree with you, Tony, that June, To October, elimination game, totally different. And I'd ride the horse, man. I'd ride the horse until, I mean, again, when a pitcher pitches a no-hitter, a pitcher pitches into the 130, 140-pitch range, that's adrenaline. So you give him a next start off. Well, in the case of Blake Snell, he's got five months to have off to get ready for the spring training of 2021. So there's no holding back. And and there was a list, I think Vince Catronio put out a list of pitchers who pitched on short rests. And I remember Madison Bumgarner in what 2014 pitching against the uh, uh, the Kansas City Royals. He came out of the bullpen after starting a couple of days before and completed the game. And I remember that the, the broadcaster saying, "Well, he's only going to throw so many pitches," according to Bruce Bochy. I said, "Give me a break." I said, "He's got all winter to rest. You know, they're not going to hurt him. But bottom line, they're trying to win a World Championship. He finished it out, and they won the World Series. And and so I, I think you know what." What the Rays do, and do it magnificently well during the season, when you get a postseason and you've got a chance, especially after a game, uh, that uh, remarkable comeback with a base hit to right center field by by Phillips and two-run score, and, and the game is over, and you go, wow, this is magical for the Tampa Bay Rays. And, you know, they should have let the magic continue to roll. Unfortunately, it did not, and they've got to think about it for a long time.
4: What does this do, this win? for star players, you know, like Clayton Kershaw, Cody Bellinger's young, Boots, uh, Mookie Betts already had one, but that now gives him two. You've won two. I mean, as, as someone like yourself or the guys you played with, your prominent pros, what does that do for your career and your legacy when you do get that championship?
9: Well, not surprisingly, Dave Roberts said in the acceptance speech after the win, he mentioned Clayton Kershaw. See, and I don't buy into the fact that, that Clayton Kershaw is not a Hall of Famer because he doesn't have a World Series ring, which he has now. But Dave Roberts pointed it out that, Kershaw, you've got your ring. And it's almost like that solidified his first ballot entrance into Cooperstown, the Hall of Fame. But I, I think what it does, I mean, every one of those guys, you think it's been 32 years, and unfortunately the A's were the, the victims in 1988. But even more fortunate, uh, the A's came back and won the Giants in '89. But you go 32 years, that means a lot of those guys weren't even born whenever the Dodgers last won the World Series. It's unfortunate that this was the year, but I think you've said it. I agree with you that whoever won this year, it was going to be a special year because of being in the bubble, uh, playing the way they had to do to stay healthy, and and then to be a world champion, I think it's exceptional. And, And there's nothing to be said negatively about winning a world championship in this 2020 season. But I think from the player standpoint, first and foremost, typically when a player wins a world championship, his salary escalates. Dodgers Dodgers don't have to worry about that. I mean, their payroll was three times higher than the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, if you take a team that has a world championship team put together, then because of that world championship, sure, the legacy is there as being a world champion. You know, you've got a World Series ring. You've got the trophy they'll always remember you. And especially how about Corey Seager back to back? I mean, MVP in the league championship series and in the world series. I mean, that's special for him, but I think as many as those players that the Dodgers want to keep in their organization, they have the ability to do that financially. And I think that's what will set them apart for a long time coming. I mean, this is the what third year in the last four, they've been in the world series. The other two, uh, they didn't win for obvious reasons, but perhaps obvious reasons, but the fact that they did in this shortened season, I, I think the biggest thing it does for them, the players, it says, OK, we're world champions. That means a certain amount of money. The Dodgers don't have any problem in re-signing whomever they want to based on the availability of whether they're a free agent or not. But uh, I think from Clayton Kershaw's standpoint, it's great. Uh, but all the players, I mean, because none of those guys, Dave Roberts won in 2004, still the biggest stolen base in postseason history, uh, will always be in his resume. But for him to have won it as a player now as a manager for him personally, I think that sets him apart because not many players have done that. I'm uh, Not many managers have done that, having been a player and a world champion. But I think that sets him apart. But, you know, there's nothing better because just like you, you're kind enough to do the intro to me about a two-time world champion. You know, they can never take that away from you. They can never take away the fact you're a world champion. You look up from my standpoint in 73-74, I'm listed as one of the players of the 25-man roster. And the Dodgers will be able to do that in this 2020 season. However many years in the future, they'll be able to look back and say, I was on that roster in 2020 when we won a world championship. To me, that's what makes it special because the last team standing is the one that's the most important. That's the one that will always be remembered. Um, Not who they played to get there. And and maybe the team that they played to beat in the World Series. But I'll be honest with you, I'm hard-pressed right now to, to try to remember who they played. In the uh, the wild card series, the division series, the league championship, I know was the Braves because it went seven, and, and like you said, Arias closed it out with three innings, and then did the same thing in the World Series. But um, you know, it was it was it was a good series. Uh, it's almost like David against Goliath, and as it turned out, it was Goliath winning the World Series. And um, Tony, go back to Game Seven of the League Championship Series. I mean, there's there's so many things that happen in that uh, of the league championship series. And then you get in the world series and, and the way pitchers are being pitched and the shifts and things like that. You know, I think there are some times that I think going forward, we may see some changes. Now the commissioners come out and said, you know, maybe there's going to be some rule changes with regard to the shifts. Well, it's going to be for the left-handed hitters. That's going to be something for them that they can help them, but uh, who knows what's going to be happening there. But I, I think when when you start seeing players, going against the shift, I think that's going to bring it back somewhat to some normalcy because you don't want to lose a game because you're shifting a guy a certain way and you're pitching him another way, trying to get him to hit in the shift. And the hitters are going to be smart enough, based on their hitting coaches and the hitters themselves, to say, I'm not going to hit into the shift. And I think especially a right-handed hitter, lefty, it's a little bit different. I think if they do anything, they'll make sure or try to have the second baseman, shortstop, third baseman, whoever moves over into the shift in the shallow right field. And when you have Machado playing so far that he caught a ball down the right field line in foul territory in a game, that's to me absurd. But I think if they do anything, they may insist that you can only go X number of feet on the grass or you have to stay on the dirt if you're on the right side of the infield. Because you don't see the shift on the left side, the depth, at least with the outfield, uh, infielder going to the outfield. Because it's such a longer throw, shorter throw if you're playing in the outfield, shifting on the right side because it's a shorter throw to first base. So we'll see what the commissioner decides to do. But uh, uh, I I think it's still a great game. Don't mess with it too much.
4: Ray, we'll end on this. I'm going to give you one move for the A's this offseason. One move. (laughs) What is it?
9: Well, I'm going to go back to when the uh, Florida Marlins came into existence. They, I think it was Brian Harvey, a closer, that they signed because they said one thing: if we have a lead in the ninth inning, we want to win the game. We're an expansion team, but we don't want to work hard to have a lead in the ninth inning and blow it. We want a an established closer. I think, excuse me, I think what Liam Hendricks has done, closing for the Athletics, setting himself up to. Not just be a one inning closer to pitch two innings. Uh, you know he he was a starter. Now granted, his arm strength is not built up to be able to pitch three innings like Raleigh Fingers did or this kid Arias did with the Dodgers. But when you have a, a reliever that can come in and throw as hard as he did with a wipeout slider and curveball, I think Liam Hendricks could be very important to this organization because who knows the number of relievers that are going to be lost due to free agency? But I if you give me one now i don't want to take anything away from marcus simeon uh but you asked me about one player i've got to go to the closer somebody that with a lead at the ninth inning or maybe even the eighth inning, that can win the game now <laughs> having said that what the rays did with what 12 different guys saved a game for the rays this year see i i think what might be happening looking back to 2014 15 when ned ghost said if we have a lead kansas city royals if we have a lead or are tied from the sixth or seventh inning on, we're gonna win because they had the bullpen set up. And you notice how baseball changed at that time where relievers became very important, not only as a closer, but as a setup guy. I can envision that perhaps going forward that you might see this say closer role become used by different players or used by the manager with different players. And let's say in the seventh inning, the game's on the line. Maybe you bring in Liam Hendricks to get out of that jam. I think you have to compensate him as a closer getting out of that jam, and, and those numbers have to show up. But, you know, I, I think what the Rays did in using a number of different pitchers in various situations, uh, there was one pitcher who pitched every inning from the fourth inning on, and it, which means, you know, so so he's, he's capable of closing, but, oh, by the way, we need you in the fourth. We're going to put you in there. And so there's no defined closer role for the Tampa Bay Rays, and I think that's something that clubs, some clubs might go to. We'll see what happens, but to answer your question, in long way, I would go with Liam Hendricks because of the success he has had the last two years taking over for Blake Trinan in 2019 and doing what he did in the shortened season in 2020, and he was special, and I, I just hope somehow, some way the A's can keep it.
4: All right. You have a wonderful weekend. Have a great Halloween with the grandkids, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>
9: And like I said,
4: what are you doing special
9: for the Chicken Pie Shop, Walnut Creek? You're going to have some Halloween stuff going on there.
4: We got, we have all kinds. I, we got, we, uh, we we have a band on Saturday night They're going to be there. Oh yeah, we're going. To, wow. Hey, hey Ray, Commander Cody is going as you for Halloween. <laughs>
9: uh, Cody's the best as you, my friend. So you guys have a great rest of the day, rest of the week, and uh, hopefully we talk to you next week. Be safe, Ray. You too, buddy. Take
5: care. Take care, the, Cody. See you,
4: Ray. The great Raymond Fossey, who we call the face of the franchise.
5: Gonna Fossey's actually not a bad idea for Halloween. I mean, Halloween's always a, a weird time for me because. Ray Fossey jersey. By the way, can you do the read? Oh, yeah. So, Alameda County voters, cast your ballot at the Oakland Coliseum Vote Center Saturday, October 31st. Through Tuesday, November third, you can vote in person from your car or drop off your mail-in ballot. For more information, visit athletics.com/vote. That's athletics.com/vote. Now, I don't know if you saw this earlier. Uh, we, we got to send to our email, but the A's are providing 3,000 uh, N95 masks and 1,300 1, preloaded Clipper cards to help ensure the most vulnerable Alameda County residents can vote safely in the 2020 general election the team is partnering with the Oakland or with the Alameda County Health Care for the Homeless AC Transit Metropolitan Transport Commission and social service agencies on the initiative so pretty cool thing that they're doing providing mask and clipper cards to the uh, vote for vulnerable communities in Alameda County to vote on the election which is Tuesday so we got a couple days left till the election happens uh, on Tuesday, and ha- Halloween's always interesting for me because my birthday is the next day, so I don't know what I'm doing for Halloween this year, and it's what two days from now, so you're not coming to my house. Well, I'm I'm supposed to have a big uh, when I say big, um, a socially distant eight people party at Beer Thirty in uh, which is up in, in the Santa Cruz area. So we'll we'll see how uh, it goes. Yeah, then you ain't showing up.
4: Uh, and it's just one of many. Examples of how much the A's care about the community. What they've been doing in the community is nothing but fantastic. Coming up next, Paul Hembakides from ESPN, their morning TV show, Get Up, joins us next. And oh, by the way, he doesn't agree with a lot of people about the World Series. You'll find out, you'll find out why next, right here on A's Cast Live.
2: Hi, this is Ramon Laureano. And the
4: throw is gonna be
2: and you're listening to Ace Cast, your 24-7 destination for Ace Baseball.
4: Cody, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay, because I touched some stuff and I heard that weird sound that normally changes all my stuff.
5: Yeah, no, know you hear. I saw you tap on the mic and I was like, okay, something might be going on here, but no, you're good.
4: <laughs> okay, okay. All right, I want to explain this. Not in a baseball way. Because baseball people now are so addicted to the data that once again, there's a belief now that people rather lose doing it their way than win going against what they believe. So in the NFL, you'll hear people criticize for play calling. And you'll hear coaches say, well, that was the right play call for the situation. And everybody in that room, in the media, looking around goes, well, if it was the right call, why did not it work? Well, it was the right, no. If it's the right call, why did not it work? Because their defense stopped it. You may have thought through your process it was the right call. But it didn't work. So how can how can anything that fail that fails be the right call? Isn't that kind of where we're at right now? Well, the situation and the way we looked at it and the way everything they said we should run this play. Well, their defense stopped it. And there was an interception or there was a fumble and they made a play. So can you really say it was the right play call if it didn't work? Doesn't it have to work to be the right call?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing more of the things in the NFL that get criticized more than anything is when the teams go for two and when they're down by double digits and everyone's like, why are you going for two? Because the analytics tell you that? That's the new one that that just drives me crazy. Everyone on the coaches for going for two. But, yeah, there's – this whole situation and i'm like i've told you before about and, and i'm i kind of did a 180 on this where i was i'm always on the side of analytics but kevin cash uh and the rays made the wrong decision here i will i will bash my good friend cashy on that i don't think that they made the right decision pulling snell after only 73 pitches cuz they thought that uh they had the right matchup and clearly they didn't and a lot of people are trying to back it, including
4: Paul Himbechides from ESPN, our buddy Hembo, the top researcher. And you see him on the morning show on ESPN. Get up. Here is our buddy, Paul Himbechides, better known, especially on baseball tonight podcast with Buster only as Himbo. Hembo, How are you there in New Jersey? How's everything with ESPN? Get up in the new house. We're doing great. Great, great all across
12: the board. I am, uh, a tad bit disappointed that we did not get a seventh game. Although yeah. given the, given the Justin Turner news, who knows when that would have been. And I have to admit that I'm already counting down the days till pitchers and catchers report, because football is already is, is, is already overwhelming me. So that that's where I am. I, 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 we didn't, I feel like the season just didn't quite quench my thirst. That's all.
4: You know, the, 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 the thing about the Justin Turner deal is everybody's like appalled that he came back out. What they kind of don't, talk about is remember he was around them the last couple days he's high-fiving he's working out with them. so whether he's with you at the end of the game or he's been with you for the first eight innings uh you know it's kind of weird everybody came down on him
5: yeah
12: I think the I think the, the, the most reasonable criticism of his decision is pretty clear and it's just that optically it's it's it's, it's rotten and it sends a bad message. And Major League Baseball, who had worked so hard for the last two months to do, to do this in sort of an upright way, right, you know, really a, above reproach, it just leaves a sour taste in the mouth of people who wanted to sort of stand on that hill. And it's very difficult for us to to watch him knowing that information and see him doing that stuff given what we know about the virus. So, like, I, I do sort of see both sides here. I'm not outraged on either end, but I'm with you. Like, there, there, there's certainly plenty of honest logic to say that that all the vitriol directed towards him may have been overblown in the moment.
4: All right, before we get to the World Series, the breaking news today is Tony La Russa coming out of retirement at 76 years old and going back to manage the White Sox. Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, made this deal. It was his deal, and he had always said the biggest mistake he ever had. With the White Sox, because I think we can look at his Bulls mistakes, and they were pretty bad. Uh, but the biggest mistake he ever had with the White Sox was firing Tony Larusa. What do you think about Tony, who hasn't been on the bench since 2011? I don't favor the move. Now, to be clear, Tony Larusa has forgotten more about
12: baseball than I will ever know. But I saw some—I saw Jeff Passan reporting today that it's sort of sending shockwaves within the organization. I think you put it right. Like this was not a. Mutually agreed upon decision. This is Jerry Reinsdorf going rogue. He's the owner. He can do whatever he wants. But in my judgment, Tony La Russa at this point in his career is not is not the person or the kind of manager that I want, uh, sort of helping my young ascending baseball team reach its reach its pinnacle. Like that's it also if you look at the the managers around the game that have had the most success lately, they aren't guys that look like him. They aren't guys that behave like him. And the the most recent thing that Tony La Russa has has really stood out to me in the news for was when he was. Banging his his drum for, you know, Harold Baines to get in the Hall of Fame, you know, based on his game winning RBI or some such nonsense. So this is a person who's whose you know baseball acumen exceeds all of ours. But at the same time, just because he knows more doesn't necessarily mean that he knows better. And I thought Rick Renteria did a pretty good job at that club this year. And given how good and promising that young nucleus is, this seems to me to be like a wild card that is is very unnecessary to throw in. I would understand if, if the White Sox didn't have much a chance of winning or if it was one of these teams that was just stacked, you know, f- you know, f- filled with veterans, not not dissimilar to what the Astros did this with, with Dusty Baker. Like Tony LaRusso would have made sense for me in that sense. But this is a sort of off the wall decision that I think will in all likelihood backfire. I mean, I- I'm rooting for that club. I like him a lot. There's a lot of players in that team that are fun and and easy to root for. But I'm not a f- I don't particularly favor the decision.
4: So you're not seeing this as a Jack McKee and Trader Jack taking over the then Florida Marlins and leading them to the World Series. It's a fine comp. I mean, that's the
12: last time a 75-year-old manager managed. The other time was Connie Mack, who managed till he was 175. So <laughs> well, days, baby. that's right. The, 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 the finest to ever do it. Um, this guy's Tony La Russa, is, is ancient in baseball years. I mean, he managed Minnie Minosa, who was born in 1925, but he was with the uh, White Sox the last time. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, the idea of him like coming, taking the ball from Garrett Crochett, who was born in 1999, uh, seems just sort of a bizarre world to be living in. I mean, I think that's probably the comp that Reinsdorf would himself make. I just think these teams are, those circumstances are very different. You're making this move in an off season after your team was just, just had an awesome year, nearly advanced in the postseason. I think when, like when you spend so much time and energy in building the foundation of a team, I I don't want my owner going rogue. I want my general manager making the best baseball decision. I think it's hard to justify that. This is that.
4: Yeah. I mean, if you're the analytic team for the Chicago White Sox. What are you thinking right now? I'm thinking I should start applying to the Rays for
12: their openings because I'm like that. Tony La has, has actually been a genius managing his bullpens, but like that was so long ago. Like that's, that was baseball ten years ago. The, the, you know the sort of peak of of, of Tony La Russa in that sense. He was he, he was genuinely a great manager for a long time. You know that better than anybody. But just because someone was great at something once doesn't mean they will be again. I mean, it would be like when the Knicks hired Phil Jackson. It just these things. Um, don't work more often than they do. And I think the Jack McKeon comparison is a good one, but that was a lightning in a bottle situation. That's one that we remember because it worked, not not because it was necessarily the right decision at the time. And this to me to ha- to, to pull this trigger in the off season is, is peculiar. I think you're going to hear some uh, sort of anonymous feedback coming out of there throughout the winter. That isn't also, isn't all that favorable.
4: Yeah. We've already looked around on Twitter and some of, some of our guys that we bring on the show have mentioned that, you know, may cause some players not wanting to go there. Uh, but hmm. then again to give tony a little credit you know he and Sandy Alderson there in the late 80s they kind of started their own version of analytics right the 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 modern day, now the modern day bullpen has changed dramatically right but back when we start talking about setup guys left on left closer bringing Eck you know kind of they kind of had their own analytics so it's not like tony LaRusso is foreign to doing stuff with numbers because he and Sandy Alderson were doing that back in the day it's just you know that He's an old school field general.
12: Yeah. I mean, the things he was doing back in the, I mean, that was before most of these guys were born yet. So, I mean, Tim Anderson was a spark in God's eye when he was doing that in the late 80s. So, I, yeah, like, I I also think that his temperament generally and his style of managing, like like you described, just isn't really, this isn't really a thing anymore. That's just not the way that we operate in baseball, but that's a dying breed. Like, that's, that's not, that's not what works. Now, maybe, maybe Jerry Reinsdorf did have, have sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a collaborative effort with the front office there. And, and so you sort of talked them into it for X, Y, and Z reason. Maybe I'm sure there was there was conversations in advance about how you're going to sort of blend your strengths with what we already do well. But the White Sox are an ascending team that I don't think, can aff- like this, this is how I would best describe it. Like the risk reward here is definitely on the uneven side. I guess that's how I would best put it. I think there's a better chance that this fails spectacularly than succeeds spectacularly.
4: Yeah, I mean, if you were uh, at a casino right now and you had to bet, you know, it works or it doesn't work, I think we all know where we would be going with that bet. Uh, yeah, but we'll we, we, right. we will see. We'll see. You never know. All right. So please explain to me with all of your magic and all of your voodoo of why you take out a guy who's dealing uh, in, a, in a World Series game and you're treating game six of the World Series like it's June 6th. And not game six of the World Series. You tell me the theory behind this is what we do. These are our numbers. We're always going to stick to that. I'll just say this before you get to the numbers. I have been told, whether this is true or not, that some of these people in these front offices rather lose doing it their way. They're so bullish on what they believe in and believing solely in the data that they rather lose doing it their way than doing it what we used to call conventional in baseball. Sure, and maybe Kevin Cash feels that empowerment
12: considering when he walked to, walked out to get Blake's Snell. one of my friends put it this way, it's like he was handing the ball to Mariano Rivera, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not Nick Anderson for the 15th time in the playoffs, but what I'm gonna do for you is this, okay? A lot of the conversation, I think, has been dishonest in the sense that this has become a referendum on overarching analytics. I'm not comfortable with that. The reason the, a- the Rays reached the World Series was because of analytics. You don't get to game six of the Fall Classic with a bottom five payroll by making your pitching decisions based off of feel. Okay, we can all agree that, generally speaking, analytics has done them way more good than harm. But I'm going to provide you and your fine listeners the exact information that I believe Kevin Cash used in making that decision, and then I'll allow you to retort. I have two numbers for you, okay? The first is the uh, third time through the order uh, dynamic, which Kevin Cash specifically mentioned post-game wanting to avoid. This season, including the playoffs, Blake Snell owned a 10.13 earned run average and allowed an OPS of 960 when having when navigating the lineup for the third time. Both of those figures ranked in the bottom five among all pitchers to start at least a dozen games. Further, he took Blake Snell out after pitch number 73. Here's my note for you there. No pitcher in baseball. Had a worse batting line from pitch 75 on than Blake Snell this season. Opponents batted 3.49 with an OPS near 1,100 against him in those circumstances. When w- once Blake Snell reached pitch number 75, his opponents became Lou Gehrig. So I'm telling you this: like they don't have the, the sort of in-game inf- tracking information. Obviously, they've done a good job you know, deleting the technology this year because of what happened before. So this this is the information that Kevin Cash is using. In your judgment, is that a compelling enough argument to pull Blake Snell? Uh, in those circumstances, despite the fact that he was dealing, to quote you.
4: June 6th, yes. July 6th, yes. Game six of the World Series and knowing what's down there in my bullpen. I mean, at some point, you have to be able to know and make a decision as a human being uh, on on players. That's That's the beauty of when people talk about analytics. Yes, we all believe in them. But at some point, you're not we're not dealing it we're we're not at Amazon and we're not delivering packages and we have all this data. We're dealing with human beings. And essentially you took a guy out with a better arm for that night. You know remember there's adrenaline going on. This is game 6, it's the World Series. The scenario is different than just what the numbers say because your numbers that you're giving me are numbers from the regular season and, and the playoffs including and, game okay. 2,
12: including game 2 and that's I think the point you're missing. We can have a conversation, a very legitimate one about whether or not Nick Anderson was the right choice. I think there's an overwhelming mountain of data to suggest he was not. However, let's go back to game two. Okay. In game two.
4: Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. If you're going to defend, if you're going to defend his decision to take him out, because they use the data, his same data is what's been telling him who to put in. So that's how they also got there was bringing this guy in in high leverage situations. That's fair. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And that's what happened. But what I'm saying is this.
12: In game two, the 18th batter Blake Snell faced was Chris Taylor. He was dealing at that point. He had nine strikeouts just like he did in game six. Chris Taylor hit a dinger the third time through the order. He walked Mookie Betts, and he, and, and Corey uh, Seager singled off a lazy slider right down the middle, the same pitch, the same exact pitch that Austin Barnes singled off of it, right down the middle, a lazy 89 right down the chute. There it was. So what I'm saying is Kevin Cash was watching history repeat itself. He didn't, Blake Snell didn't strike out the last five hitters he faced. Blake Snell tired once he got to the 75 pitch mark in game two. We watched him. He allowed the home run on pitch number 80. He allowed the singer to see, single to Seager on pitch number 88. Anderson came in, struck out Jerson Turner. That was that. No one died. They scored five runs in that game. That's why they won the game, right? So we saw this happen in game two. Kevin Cash was watching history repeat itself. And yes, he struck out the one, two, three hitters twice, but he wasn't as dominant the last time uh, facing the bottom of the order the second time through. And the pitch he threw to Austin Barnes was sloppy. And at that point, what Kevin Cash is saying is, I'd rather make this decision too early than too late. Now, I can't defend his decision to bring in Nick Anderson. I just can't do it. I mean, he was dominant during the regular season. One inherited runner scored the entire regular season. He wasn't the same guy, and that's where you're right in saying lose your steam from your bullpen the longer a series goes because you can't use a third time through the order argument, Kevin. If you're going to also bring in Nick Anderson, they're going to see him three times in the series, right? That 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 is where that's the point he is missing. If you don't have a, a better option than Nick Anderson, then you have to stick with Blake Snell. But at that point in the game. I think he would have been better off going to Castillo or somebody else using one of your best high-leverage guys then. But I don't think it was a mistake to pull Blake Snell when he did.
4: Now, if I have Raleigh Fingers or I have Mariano Rivera or I have one of these guys, I'm feeling better. That's My whole thing is, you know, if I'm watching a guy, and I understand what you're saying, but at that point where I am trying to win the World Series, what always scares me about going to bullpens early is every guy's got to be perfect. You're asking multiple guys to go out there and be fabulous. And you know what? Any level of baseball you've ever played at, you'll know the more guys that you put in the game, the more chance guys are going to give up runs. It's just the way it is. That's right. And I think the the post-game comments by the Dodgers sort of reflect that opinion
12: of yours. Like, they were they were thrilled. They said they're thrilled that that they pulled Blake Snell when they did. But to me, like, that's not... All that meaningful when we have a season that says he stinks at this and we have game two in which he had the exact same breakdown at the exact same time in his pitch count. And yeah, he was dealing, but he had also struck out nine games and nine batters in game two. And this is a person who has not demonstrated the ability to have really any length. Throughout, really, since his young season, so if he was going to have a you know Bob Gibson or Tom uh, or Sandy Koufax like performance, it was going to be it was going to be out of character. And I would also say that like we'll remember this as being the wrong managerial decision, but this is much a, this is no worse a decision than Matt Harvey talking Terry Collins into pitching the ninth inning in Game Five in 2015, or in Pedro Martinez talking Grady Little into staying on the mound against the the, the Yankees in the World in, in the in the ALCS. Like those decisions were also made and and, and made for the wrong reasons. Now perhaps. Like, it's not quite apples to apples, but Blake Snell at 75 pitches is like, is like what Pedro was at 100, right? So I think it's really easy to, to use the analytics, you know, ram that down your throat here. We've also seen the opposite work in that way many more times than not.
4: We would have never had a John Schmoltz, uh, Jack Morris, Game 7 World Series with the way we're doing it today. Because it would have been like, oh, Jack Morris has lost two miles an hour off that last fastball. Oh, my God. I mean, I actually heard – I actually—I don't know. Somebody wrote, wrote that said, well, you know, on that last pitch, there was a one-mile-an-hour difference on his fa- – you know, everybody's trying to justify the move, and you're like, bro, if you're saying that, then Greg Maddox wouldn't have won 350-whatever games.
12: Of course not, but – this is these are the rules we're using now right and and the rays and the rays are playing the system the rays are that master chess player i talked about last time i was on with you but there is a really good argument to be had that the way that analytics have pervaded the game we're losing our entertainment value for sure because like 10 years ago Blake Snell's going to get going to get a chance to face 25 guys through the you know that's 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 baseball that's, that's that's baseball as we know it but if you if you can't legislate it or you choose not to regulate it then this is what we're going to get and if that's a big problem and people don't like that then it's up to the commissioner's office to make something happen. And I'm all for it. In fact, I think, like, I actually favor baseball. Like, I, I grew up watching baseball, like, my 2000, 2005, 2010. Like, that's sort of my prime of baseball watching. And the game has aged 30 years in the last 10 years, the best I can tell. Like, the numbers drive everything. But so long as we have the data and there are no rules to say you can't, it's very hard for me to blame the Rays or Kevin Cash from doing it this way when you reach the World Series
4: doing it this way. No, I, yeah, I mean, we, I have so much respect for them. But I also will say this. I think it's better for baseball that they didn't win. I think it's better for baseball that the team that actually invests, who drafts a lot of their own guys, spent in free agency, that loves having star players because that's Los Angeles, versus the other team that goes on the super cheap. I don't like cheap. So going on the super cheap, a bunch of nameless, faceless guys coming out of the bullpen – I respect what they do, and it allows hope for, for smaller market teams, but I also think if you win like that, and it's a copycat league, well, now does everybody not want to spend money, and does everybody just want to have some random dudes coming out of the out of the bullpen? So I, yeah. I, I, I kind of, I don't know, tell me how you see it.
12: I, I see it similarly. Buster uh, came on our show yesterday and said he actually thinks that the backfiring of this decision is going to sort of have a trickle-down effect throughout the offseason, and force baseball to have a serious conversation internally about whether or not we've taken this thing too far. Now, I don't view it that way because I think this was a singular decision. I actually think it was the right one. But even if you don't, I don't view it as a referendum on the whole thing. But it is a flashpoint. It is a potential hinge point for to to have the conversation. And if if the public at large is not happy with the sport that they're consuming, this is theater, right? This is an industry. Like when the NFL decided we want quarterbacks to never get hurt, so they just make ridiculous rules to ensure they never get hurt. And the NBA were like, let's get rid of the hand check so these guys can score a thousand points a game, and it's a more popular sport. Baseball analytics works to the detriment of the entertainment value in baseball when it works to the benefit of the other, those other sports. Baseball needs to find a way to sort of nip that in the butt as best they can because right now there's a massive a massive disconnect between the fans, even the thought leaders uh, outside the sport, and those working uh, you know inside the organizations of these teams.
4: You know what could you really do? I mean, I guess you could ban shifting. Um, you got to have two guys on the left side, two guys on the right side. But utilizing, I mean, you know, we just had Raleigh Fingers on the Hall of Famer. He talked about, oh yeah, we had like we only had an eight-man pitching staff. I I don't I I don't. Well, what could you really do?
12: Well, I think for starters, I would I would lower the mound two and a half more inches. sorry, down to seven and a half inches. We know that that worked last time to a good extent. These guys are so good now. I'm not in favor of moving the mound back. To me, that's sacrosanct. But there's nothing sacrosanct about a ten, a, a ten inch mound. So I think that's a good place to start. and That would in, in, inject more offense into the sport. I do think that the the shift should be banned. I think I think there need to be four infielders, and there need to be their spikes need to be in the dirt. That needs to be the rule. Um, I think it's clear that that would benefit. Uh, offense a considerable amount because not only would those hits go through that are that are, that aren't when you're being shifted, but also if you have a better chance of hitting a line drive or a ground ball that gets through, maybe guys wouldn't be trying to swing out swing out of their you know what every time, and that could make a big difference too. I also think it would probably help in regulating the baseball because it seems to me that big, some of these big swings that we're having across the game are just because every time these guys pick up a baseball, it feels different. It flies differently. Like within the within the same postseason, you and I noticed the difference in how these baseballs flying out of the stadium and the spin rate that these guys are getting. It's crazy. Right. So like you can even start as simply as that. But I would be all for having the conversation about whether or not you can limit the number of relievers you use in a nine inning game because that fundamentally changes everything that injects a lot more offense into it and then guys can't blow out you know 100 when they come in to face two guys because you, if you only have one guy behind him you have to preserve your bullpen I think that's a that's another like the NFL they, they obviously limit the roster sizes maybe may, may, maybe here like we see the same guys play on, on, you know most of the plays in the NFL same quarterback plays right so they baseball could do something like that. Obviously, a lot of people would probably argue that it would that would be a greater injury risk. But if you could only use five pitchers in a game, imagine how much differently the sport would be. And I don't think it'd be one of those rules that would completely like fundamentally uh, like alter how you prepare or anything. All it would be is like this is baseball now. Do We even remember the three batter minimum. That's a thing now. How about the DH that everyone was freaking out about in the National League, myself included? These things like once once you implement these things, so, think, so long as those things aren't so ingrained in our fabric that we just can't say no. I think baseball has has serious fundamental changes that they could make to greatly enhance the entertainment value of the sport. And the one thing I haven't mentioned that I would like to is that these games are starting way too late. I mean, I live here on the East Coast, and like, I mean, if you're if you're 15 years old and you love baseball. And <laughs> your parents haven't let like, you still have to watch one of these World Series games during the week. It's crazy. It's it is completely unacceptable. I know you guys are sort of spoiled out there, but here it's a major topic of
11: conversation.
4: Oh, I did I I remember uh, being back in Boston with my family watching Monday night football and it's like it's after midnight, Monday night football's still on. So no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know, when you talk about the health of the players, the new system and the new way they're doing it is really bad for pitchers. We're basically telling all of these young pitchers, get up there, throw as hard as you can until your arm blows out. Then you'll go have Tommy John and we'll bring you back.
12: And you know what? A lot of people believe that's a Major League Baseball problem. That's not a Major League Baseball problem. That's a problem of the showcase circuit, the tournaments. Major League Baseball is a product of, of, of the system, of the pipeline. What you're getting is kids that are, participating in these home run derbies and they, they think that's how baseball is and these pitchers that are like my neighbor's a d3 pitcher he sits 95 like like that's like you you'd be in the hall of fame if you were born in 1940 patrick you know like that's wild to me um so I, i'm with you like that's but if major league baseball has to do things from the top down so if, if they enforce you know whatever it is they you know you know uh, the math decides is the best way to sort of curve some of these issues which i think are issues then the trickle down effect will be sizable, and I think you'll see better coaching. But I only have about five minutes, so can we please talk about Cody's best friend, Ben Danucci? Go ahead. Cody, can you please introduce Ben Danucci to, to, to the world of Acecast Live?
5: Uh, so, Ben Danucci is a Western Pennsylvania guy like myself, backup quarterback of Pitt, just joins a long list of backup quarterbacks Pitt had that really? they let go. And, you know, <laughs> Joe Flacco was one of the guys, and then they got guys like Tom Savage and Raiders backup, Nathan Peterman, who I don't know how oh, he's still in the National Nathan Football <laughs> League. But Ben DiNucci wants James I Madison.
4: With Nathan Peterman.
5: <laughs> okay. DiNucci okay. is now the starting quarterback for America's team, the Dallas Ooh. Cowboys. And they're taking on Hembo's <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles this weekend. Roger
4: Staubach, Troy Aikman, they're not walking through that door. Who's this guy? Tony Did Romo.
5: The- 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 the-
12: Roger Staubach could own the Olive Garden. Ben DiNucci would work at the Olive Garden. But let me just provide you a little quick scouting report. Let me provide you a quick scouting report before, before you let me go on the great Ben DiNucci. Okay. So I did a little research. I'm an Eagles fan. I do a hit every Thursday here to preview the Eagles game. I was like, what are some strengths and weaknesses of Ben DiNucci? So I just decided to do some basic searching. And it turns out he has an active LinkedIn page. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Right, he's a you know quarterback, starting quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. But let me read for you the scouting report that, I'm, that worries me as an Eagles fan. I have acquired critical time management and leadership skills that will transfer to the real world. <laughs> okay, so so <laughs> so the starting quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. This is this is his bio on LinkedIn. He has acquired critical time management and leadership skills that will transfer to the real world. The real world. We will see if those transfer onto the NFL field on Sunday night. But what is also of utmost concern to me as an Eagles fan, going against the Cowboys in this game, is a little bit lower on his resume. He is proficient in the Microsoft Office suite. So if we we reach overtime, this could be a dagger if we reach overtime and, and the referees decide we are determining the outcome of this game by who prepares the best PowerPoint presentation. Ben DiNucci is going to destroy us with his animation. And I, I'm Cody. I am concerned about. I'm concerned about this from a scouting perspective. You've obviously seen him play, and you're very close with him. Should I be worried about Ben DiNucci's proficiency in the Microsoft Office suite?
5: He uh, starred at Pine Richland High School, the same high school that produced <laughs> Neil Walker. And uh, oh. fir- first <laughs> throw of the game last week, it was a dime to Amari Cooper. I only cared because I have Amari Cooper in fantasy football, but it was a great throw. I watched it live. Uh, no, f- I would fear the Cowboys this weekend going up against the Eagles. Uh, I hope like, they here's turn.
12: Here's the thing. Like, here's my concern. Like, two minute, dr- a two minute drive. Like, he has the critical time management and leadership skills. So, like, what, like, is that? Like how, how worried, like, how worried am I here? Like, if he, obviously, he can, he can direct the two-minute drive. He learned this from James Madison. My favorite thing about him is that, like, he was preparing, he was preparing himself for the recruiters, not knowing what, it, what was next in his football career, and now he's starting for the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> he's,
4: 100, he's got
12: 151 connections at the moment.
4: I'll be doing doing ribs on Halloween night, Embo. I will send pictures and let you know how it goes.
12: You better. And I will will send you pictures with my pulled pork nachos. I hope to get the chance to talk with you guys again soon. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff uh, in Major League Baseball. Uh, specifically financially. You've seen some of these guys' options not get picked up. It's like, I think we should really dive into that with some numbers. I don't I don't have them today with the World Series just being on our heels, but I want to hop back on sometime soon to do that with you guys.
4: Have a great weekend. Enjoy Halloween. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. Be safe. Later, boys. The great Paul Hembikides, better known as Hembo. Um, Cody, we are running out of time.
5: Yeah, Straley's twenty-two minutes. So if we play it now, we'll, we'll get out with like four, three or four minutes can, left.
4: Can we save Dan the K man for Monday?
5: Yeah, we can. I mean, HBO's some- not over
4: because I want to get to the. I, I've seen. I'm looking at it now on Twitter. Uh, what a Rod and the Fox game had to say about the. Uh, the Blake Snell and the analytics crew taking him out.
5: Oh yeah. I have it. Do you want, do you want, to... it's just mainly a rod here. Cause Poppy talks after, and it, 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 it's not really a thing. It's just more on Blake Snell than not, not analytics, but a rod goes in on the analytics.
4: All right.
2: The one through four hitters in the Dodgers order, which destroyed everybody in the playoffs against Snell uh, in the two starts, one for 16 with 11 strikeouts. Um, this is, let's say that this is how the rays have done it all year long really for the last bunch of years and it works it works 95 percent of the time but you uh went ballistic on twitter when this happened the moment it happened before the damage was done
10: when that happened i went to call my daughters back home in miami and say good night i don't think i watched one more it's so disappointing it's disheartening at a macro level i think these front offices are really ruining our game because you see that young man boy it, it, it hurts me because Snell is such a great young man. He does not want to be a chess piece. He wants to be a baseball player. And you want to be like John Smoltz. You want to be like Andy Pettit. You want to be like Jack Morris. My goodness, I pray to God that when 2004, uh, Sabermetrics really running the front offices because I wouldn't have had to face Pedro for the third time or Kurt Schilling. They dominated me, but I needed Sabermetrics to bail me out the way Tampa Bay front office bailed out the Dodgers.
4: Hot take.
5: Yeah, he, uh, he didn't hold back there with what he had to say. Um, I found that interesting when I heard that. And then, you know, it was all over uh, Twitter that night and the next morning and him, you know, saying that front offices are ruining the game and he said how these Ivy Leaguers deserve an F for the for the playoffs. Uh, there was a lot of stuff he said that it wasn't part of that clip and I couldn't find it anywhere. Fox didn't have the show archives when I was looking for it uh, yesterday. So, I mean, it could be out there now, but that's what I found of A-Rod, you know, going in on it. And Poppy David Ortiz went on to talk about just, you know, how bad he feels for Blake Snell for not getting the opportunity to to pitch in that game. So, uh, this whole thing, like I told you before we went into the interview with Hembo, I, I just think that Kevin Cash, I never discredit the analytics and the numbers, but I think that this is the one time where you throw those numbers out because those guys were over for 6 with six strikeouts versus Snell prior to the – these at bat – to the – Third time the order coming through, and I know Hembo dropped the slash line of the guys are hitting three forty nine against Snell after seventy five pitches. That's that's all great and everything, but he was pitching the game of his life in Game Six of the of the World Series, and you take him out. Did we not learn anything from when Dusty Baker did this with Russ Ortiz, which happened eighteen years prior the day before? No, we don't. We don't learn from that. Dis- we don't. He did it to Charlie Morton in Game Seven of the ALCS against. The Astros now they didn't lose, but he did it then too. Like, you feel like these would be learning, you know, like a learning mistake. Something you learn from, you can grow from this, and it's hopefully they grow from this going into next season. But are the how you know? Can we confidently sit here and say the Rays are going to be in the World Series again next year? Absolutely not.
4: No, no. and they're 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 always going to have change, and anytime anybody's going to make any money. They're gonna be gone. Hell, we don't even know how long they're gonna be in St. Petersburg, Florida. Let me I I, I like to use because right now, right now, um baseball people, the hardcore people inside these front offices, they don't want to hear it. And that's why I keep saying there's some people that believe some teams rather lose doing it their way. Then make dramatic changes to go against what they believe to win. They rather go down with the ship doing it their way. I think the Dodgers have been like that in the past. So they're not going to listen to the baseball. They're going to be like, hey, you know, you you two you two guys on AceCast, what would you tell? Okay, that's fine. But I have worked in the NFL. And I can tell you this. If you do not make adjustments at half, I would actually love to take anybody who believes this is exactly how we do business. This is exactly how we do it. We're not changing. The data says this. I would love to bring you in to a NFL locker room at halftime. It's 15 minutes. They rush the coaches down from from the press box. They get in their, you know, the D-line, O-line, quarterback. They all get in their certain spots, and the coaches coach their you-know-what off. And they've got pictures to show, and they have very little time. But in that very little time that you have to grab a sandwich, get an orange slice, grab a Gatorade, and listen to your coach, you have very little time to make the adjustments for the second half because they have adjusted to you. Baseball is always, sports is always a game of adjustments. Basketball, hockey, you name it. And if you don't adjust, and the other team does, and they do the right adjustment, and you don't, you are going to lose. And basically, the Rays, and you know, let's face it, they scored one run, so I mean, what are we talking about anyway? But. If you're not able to make adjustments, you're dealing with human beings. I can't say that enough. If you don't have the ability to make adjustments, I kind of doubt your coaching staff. And if your coaching staff says, well, the front office won't let us do it, what are we talking about? Yeah. Right? What are we talking about? Because let me tell you something. If you don't make adjustments in the second half of an NFL game, you get exposed. And the fact that they, 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 we have this playbook and we cannot, we can't, we can, you know, we can't make adjustments. Well, look what it did to you. And Kevin Branson came on earlier and talked about how they took Zimmerman out, the Nationals, it deflated their dugout. Why? Because you're dealing with human beings. You think your data is so great, and it is. But there's times when you've got to go beyond the data because you're not dealing with cars or I always use Amazon because my buddy's a head honcho at Amazon and they're all about data. Well, we're not shipping packages. We're dealing with human beings. And if you don't make adjustments, especially now we're talking about the World Series and the nerves, it's game six. It burned him.
5: No nerves for Blake it, Snell. I mean, he looked completely fine out there. That's the bad. That's the worst part is he was. And the most pissed. Yeah, and the mo was- Yeah, well, we saw the f bomb coming off the mound. I mean, he uh, he he didn't show any ounce of like the the moment was too big for him. He was seizing the moment. He looked awesome. He allowed two hits, with nine strikeouts. That's the second time he's done that. He's the only pitcher in World Series left-handed pitcher in World Series history to have two starts of two hits and and, and I think it's a plus strikeouts. And you pulled him early both times. You got lucky in game two because you won that game, but but this game you lost. And, and you know, I have, I have a, uh, audio from Mookie Betts, and they asked Mookie Betts after the game, you know, what was it like whenever – what were you guys thinking when Blake Snell got pulled out? Here's what Mookie said.
10: Take me to that at bat. I mean, we're sitting in the green room. You struggled a bit against Snell. They take him out. Tell me what you're thinking as Cash is taking him out and obviously the big double to ignite the Dodgers.
12: Uh, I think at that point I was like, I got a chance.
5: Um,
11: (laughs) Snail was rolling.
12: (laughs) Snail was rolling that day. You guys know how it is. I mean, it's just like you're not really seeing it that well. He was mixing it up. I mean, it was just – he was tough. He was tough. He was gross.
2: He was gross, huh? um,
12: Yeah, he he was nasty tonight, so I got to tip my cap to him. Um, You know, I wasn't asking any questions, though. I was just like, hey, you know, your manager said you got to go. And the next guy's coming in, and so, you know, I was – yeah, I knew at that point, you know, I couldn't try and put a, a bat together, and uh, you know, once he came out, I think uh, it was like everybody could breathe again, and uh, you know, we were able to put some good at bats together.
5: Everybody was able to breathe again, so the Dodgers were terrified of Blake Snell through what for what he got five and a third, and then you get you take him out for Nick Anderson, who coming into that start in that in that outing gave up six, a run in six straight games. And eight of, and including that one, he gave up eight and eight of ten uh, appearances in the postseason. Yes, he was great throughout the uh, regular season. where he gave up one inherited run all year, but the postseason is completely different. And the argument that everyone kept saying how he's probably the best reliever in baseball the last two years, he's been pretty good, but he's not. He hasn't been the best. Um, so I, I just, I, I, can't, I can't defend Cashy on this one. I think it was the wrong move. And you can throw any numbers out there you want. It just you got to go off of feel with this. And he was dominating in in those the Dodgers. They it, it was getting in their heads, as Mookie just said. They they felt like they can breathe a little bit after.
4: Yeah. The data didn't play them. You know that's another thing that the data, because they want to take they want to take the they want to take the human feelings. They want to take that out, right? We want to take the clutch gene out. We want to take whether a guy has anxiety, whether a guy can, can live up to the big moment or not. We want to take the human emotion out of it and just go by the numbers. Well, the human emotion was the other team went. They're taking him out. Sweet, you prop them up. And the worst part about it is the guys who really make this decision are not stepping up to the microphone. Cash has to step up to the microphone. He's got to sta- he's got he's got to get up there and he's got to face the music. But the guys who think they're so smart and the guys who are telling these managers what to do, they don't get in front of the microphone or the camera that's why they're able to do what they do they don't have to face the music they let the manager face the music Managers got to talk before the game got to talk after the game these guys don't these guys get in their cars and go home you know we always hear about well there's people that bring all these numbers to the manager we don't know exactly which guy's bringing him down to the manager. That guy clearly isn't going to speak to the media. The Rays have a—they have an analytics coach
5: in uniform in their dugout, and they won't let us talk to him. We've requested him how many times? Yeah, what was his nickname? Jay Money? was it? It's Jonathan Ehrlichman, I think his name is. At least that was, he was in the dugout last year. I've really paid attention to it this year. Uh, I'll, I'm actually going to check on that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they went. Would, we like, we want to talk to him. We think it's fascinating.
4: We're not going to hate on him. And they would not allow him to speak to the media. And that's where, you know, you may not like A-Rod, or, but it, that that's where they're kind of right. The way this game is going, the entertainment value. Now everything changes. Everything's fluid. Things can change. But I, I, you know, you had your opportunity to take this to Game 7, which would have been huge because it would have got great ratings. The ratings weren't fabulous. I think a lot of people are in election mode, and that has definitely hurt uh, sports, no question. Still, baseball did did far better than, like, the NBA did for the postseason. But a Game 7 would have been epic. And I'm proud of Dave Roberts. I'm proud that Dave Roberts... I don't know what Andrew Friedman and his staff were thinking, but you bring out a power left-hander, a starter, we have seen the starters are the guys with your best arms. Bringing them out of the bullpen to get those crucial outs at the end of the game, what, you're going to go to Kenley Jansen? Blake Trinan? Joe Kelly? Any of those guys? No. I'm going with that kid who's got electric stuff, and I'm putting him out there. Go get us the World Series trophy. Bravo to you, Dave Roberts, because let's face it, the Dodgers did what the Rays did. Remember when they're not going? We're not going left on left. We're not putting some of our best players out there. They They had some of their best players sitting on the bench at Fenway Park. They didn't win that series. When you're dealing in the high-pressure situations in the biggest games in the postseason, just looking at a sheet that's got numbers on it, and then now cash, because this is something that's coming from his front office, he's got to defend it. And he's got to act like it's it's his idea, and that's why you got to pay him some good. I mean, I don't even know what he makes. He probably doesn't make a lot of money. But uh, he's got to wear it unfortunately for him. But it's just moves like that, that there's two sides. There's the, aha, see, you pull this crap, you're not going to win in the end. And then there's the other side going, no, 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 this was the right move, you just don't understand. So there's like two sides of it. But you know what? It keeps us talking about the World Series, so maybe it is a good thing.
5: Yeah, and I I looked up what Jonathan Ehrlichman's title is. He's a process and analytics coach. And apparently he never played anything higher than T-ball is what the Wall Street Journal reported in an article. So, a guy from Princeton is in dugout as a process and analytics coach, who we haven't got a chance to talk to. Now, the Rays have been great. They gave us Joey Wendell. They opened a Ryan Stanek, who is no longer the opener. Hey, you know what we should and check. Kashi. You know what we should check. We should check if he's done an interview.
4: Because if he hasn't, that speaks volumes. You're basically hiding a coach. What organization can you not say, hey, can I talk to your first base coach, your hitting coach, your pitching coach? Your... That would speak volumes. If all of a sudden you got this guy in the dugout and you never allow him to speak to the media,
5: you're hiding something. Uh, I'm looking I'm looking on Twitter right now, not Twitter, uh, Google to see. And it looks like um, he's from Canada, so it looks like he might have done something with Bloomberg or something last year, it looks like, but that I really don't see a lot on here from him. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe he does Maybe he's done radio in Tampa. Uh, I don't. I think I know one person in sports talk in Tampa that I could ask eventually and see if what he's done. But you're right about Ka- Kevin Cash. is going to have to wear this the rest of his career. He got. He was that close to getting to a game seven where Charlie Morton is pretty good in those big moments for you, and he would have been your starter in game seven. But also, what needs to be addressed is Randy Arozarena was unbelievable. Uh, this could be one of those instances where if, if uh, you know, with them losing, I would have been okay with him winning the World Series MVP for how good he was. And in game six, he was two for four with the homer, and he ended up with 10 home runs and 29 hits in the postseason. The Rays as a team in that game, I think, were three for 29. Three for 29. You can't win um, – newsflash, you can't win a game without scoring runs. So if you're going to bank on Randy Rosarena hitting a solo home run and that's it, like, I'm sorry, it's not. that's not good enough. Brandon Lowe is their best hitter. He struggled all postseason. G-Man choice, I mean, the whole lineup was just – besides Kevin Kiermeyer, who was hitting lefties really well in the World Series, they all struggled. And that's just – you know, they are, they are a big swing and miss team, and we saw that a lot throughout the entire postseason with them. The A's are a swing and miss team too, but the Rays – probably rely on the home run more than the A's do. And, I mean, we did see the Rays put down a couple bunts, so bravo to them for trying to play small ball and stealing bases. But relying on Randy Arozarena too much came back to bite them, and then pulling Snell was just like the uh, icing on top of everything that went wrong for them in game six.
4: In the end, a lot of respect for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Everything that everybody had to go through. We're talking about a pandemic. There's people dying in our country and all over the world. Social injustice. For the West Coast teams, air quality. The potential hurricane that almost uh, the Astros and the A's had to deal with. I mean, you're traveling around. You're not comfortable traveling around. Then get to the close of the postseason. Now we're going to put you in a bubble being away from your family, being away from your friends. To be the team at the end, and we've been saying this, to be the team at the end to win it all, I will look at this Dodger team. as one of the toughest teams I've ever seen because they've dealt with stuff no other team in the history of our game has ever had to deal with. Nobody. More playoff games, more playoff rounds, fans not in the stands, Then there's fans in the stands. I mean, the Rays went from a bubble in San Diego, no fans. All of a sudden, our bubble now moves to Texas. And oh, by the way, there's fans now. But in the end, the Dodgers were the best team during the regular season, and they win the World Series. That says a lot. And it might get scary, folks. Does these Dodgers now that they've gotten over that hump? I mean, they own the West. They're going to be in the postseason. They're on a Braves-like run. Can they now roll off a few titles with the confidence that they have? You got you got a bunch of players in their prime or entering their prime, and they got a stocked minor league system to keep on bringing guys up. Who's the next Cody Bellinger? Who's the next Will Smith? Gavin Lux.
5: Carab- Who's the next Walker Bueller? Dustin May. <laughs> I mean, they've got guys coming out of nowhere. Ruiz is the next catcher they have. They have a, they have so you're right. They're so so talented. They draft well. They don't spend money irresponsibly in free agency. I mean, I guess you can argue that AJ Pollock might have been in a um, a splurge uh, free agent signing. But like the biggest contract that's the biggest contract Andrew Freeman's given out since he's been there as the as a, for a free agent signing obviously you have the resigning of Mookie Betts and the resigning of Justin Turner a couple of years ago who was a, who was a free agent I believe going into this off season but they've made all the right moves and and it, I'm very happy for Dave Roberts to finally get that that uh the monkey off his back and winning that world series and Clayton Kershaw winning I mean I'm one of the people like like you've said I don't think Kershaw needed the World Series to validate that he's the best pitcher of this generation. I, I think that – I don't think there's – um, I, you really can't dispute that. like J- Justin Verlander's been great, but Clayton Kershaw – I think Kershaw – I'm sorry, I think he's the best pitcher that we've seen in the last 20 years. Like, that's where we saw peak Pedro Martinez, but Kershaw has just been unbelievable for the Dodgers. Well, when you go to the playoffs
4: as much as he has – You know, it's kind of Greg Maddox-like. But you would always say, hey, Maddox won one. If you're a guy that never wins a World Series title and you're that big old horse that they talk about, well, now that's gone. So now he's got the three Cy Young awards. He's got all those. He's got the winning percentage that's unreal. And now he's got the World Series champion. You can never not call him a World Series champion. He has the ring. Can he roll off a couple more? We'll see. But once you you just got to win it once.
5: And he did that. And he performed well in the World Series. Very well. The whole postseason he was great. I think he's starting to bury that narrative a little bit of him being a, struggle, a struggling pitcher in the postseason. But I think we'd be remiss before we end the show to not talk about the big news that could come out tomorrow. Will Steve Cohen be the new owner of the New York Metropolitans? The vote scheduled for 1.30 p.m. Eastern and ten thirty a.m. Pacific time tomorrow. And what's
4: going on with the Blasio, the mayor of New York? Doesn't yeah. like this, and he's going to try and stop it. I mean, what?
5: Isn't he? I, someone's was it you that said this, or someone said he's a Red Sox fan, or something? First of all, how are you a Red Sox fan as as the mayor of New York? I don't understand how that works. Uh, but yeah, vote to one thirty tomorrow, we'll see if Cohen's the new. Uh, The new manager of the Mets and maybe his big free agent acquisition sort of the offseason would be bringing in George Springer, as Sarah mentioned uh, the other day with us. Okay,
4: here you go from the Associated Press. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio deflected questions Thursday about whether he wants to block the sale of the New York Mets to hedge fund manager Steve Cohen. Asked about the proposed sale at the news briefing, de Blasio said the city law department is legally obligated to the, to review the sale because City Field, where the Mets play, is on city land. He says, quote, this is Mayor de Blasio, it's our land, there is a legal requirement that if there's an ownership change, it has to be evaluated. Our law department is doing that evaluation based on the law. Can you imagine a governor, I mean, excuse me, a mayor locking the sale
5: of a major league baseball team? I I hate to say it, but it would be so Mets for that to happen. It
4: would be so Mets and so 2020.
5: We'll see. I mean, you're right about it being 2020. Uh, would this would this go on the list of uh, the the bracket for worse things to happen in Mets history? With that bracket that came out, we saw from Arts Madness or whatever that came out about all the things that have happened. Uh, this will be probably close to the top of the list where the cell of the Mets got sabot- got, gets sabotaged by the own, by the mayor of New York City. Uh, that, again, that's just that's just so Mets for it to happen if it happens. But I hope it goes through because I want to see the Mets r- try to rival the Yankees with a with a hedge fund ma- uh owner who probably will be willing to spend money probably large amounts of money springer get- and all these guys like I- I'd be I'd be very I'd be very worried if I was the uh the Yankees about them getting Cohen to go there and start spending money you know what Yankee fan just said to you it's the Mets that's true and uh, one other thing, the 2021 Bill James Handbook is is out already. Um, I've already put uh, an email in. We'll be getting t- we will be getting two copies uh, of the new Bill James Handbook here shortly.
2: Very excited it's for that.
5: It's out. Yep, came out today. Uh, we're gonna have our our good friend Mark Simon on Monday to talk about the Fielding Bible and the new handbook. So I'm already working ahead and getting the Bill James Handbook for us because uh, we both love looking through that. Plethora of knowledge that they put together every year. The World Series ended two days ago, and they already have it done. That's insane. They uh, they really live with the mantra, no days off, apparently. Thank you,
4: Bill Belichick. All right, everybody, you have a great rest of the week. Have a wonderful weekend. Be safe on Halloween. Enjoy yourselves. We'll be back on Monday for a little A's Cast Live from 1 to 4. Thank you for listening. We're going to be replaying the show, and then after uh, we replay the show, we'll be back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio.
1: This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.